All right, welcome to episode four, 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 four of the Brain Food Podcast. Yep, that's it. Uh, I mean, I, it's it's complicated because I'm always editing the one previously, and then we're also planning the one next down the street, and it's kind of uh, where actually are we in the present day? But live in the present, Simon. Here we are, episode four. Bit of a retro gaming episode today on all fronts. It seems mm-hmm. we've got our first interview with the Coles. More on that in a bit. We're starting with episode feedback, and in between all of that, we have our uh, fact section today, where we're talking basically a lot about Pong and kind of where Pong came from, how Pong came to be. And it's for a very simple game. It's got a really interesting story. So I think that'll be a lot of fun. Um, Should we we dive right into episode feedback from last time? Oh, should we do a promo for next week's episode? I believe we'll be doing an interview with Wheezy Waiter. We will, Craig from Wheezy Waiter. Uh, Mm -hmm. I don't don't know if you can say Craig from Wheezy Waiter because Wheezy Waiter is kind of his persona, isn't it? It'd be like saying, you know, Simon from Simon Whistler, which is definitely weird. But Craig, uh, Wheezy Waiter, however you want to call him, we are interviewing him as we record this i believe on the monday after next but as you guys hear that that'll be next week so there you go we are doing this right before your flight out to vidcon i was kind of scheduling this yeah. and then i was thinking this must line up with something david's like yeah i could do it till like 11 40 but then i really need to leave for the airports yeah like like if you guys if we're still talking at that point i'll just go and you can you can continue the interview because i have to leave like right then where's your where's your nearest airport uh it's actually about 45 minutes away so but it is a great airport because it's like it's one of those where like no one goes to so you walk in and from like the point you walk in the door to the point when you're ready to get on the plane is like five minutes including going through security like every time it's uh, awesome i am i'm a huge like people talk about big airports i'm like the smaller the airport the better because yeah. you can get in you can get out you're also you know huge airports are, are far away from places because there's a huge number of planes going overhead like there's, a, mm-hmm. there's an airport in london called city airport which basically just mm-hmm. serves like small planes in the center of london this is the most convenient one it's in the center of london <laughs> you can go out to Heathrow, but it'll take you 45 minutes on the underground. Mm-hmm. Even even yeah, longer, yeah. maybe. I'm not sure. Maybe much longer. Did we say what the Coles interview was for those who don't know who the Coles are? We did not. We probably should do that. Uh, <laughs> do you want to? Uh, I can. The Coles are the makers of the great, great games, the Quest for Glory series. And they have a new game coming out finally after, after like, I don't know, 15 years maybe or so since the last uh, Quest for Glory that they've worked. And it, uh, um, it's looking good so far. And they also, um, yeah, they're going to talk about, let's see, some of the early days of Sierra, how to do a successful Kickstarter campaign, um, lots and lots and lots of input on how to how to become like a computer programmer for gaming and like some some tips and stuff that they that they've learned along the way. It's, it was a really great interview. I we, we should definitely point out here that, you know, we basically decided that the practical knowledge section where we normally talk about various things that, you know, if we had a successful Kickstarter, we could talk about having a successful Kickstarter. <laughs> but uh, as we have not done that ever, um, <laughs> and, and uh, they have a very they have a very, very successful Kickstarter to the tune of over four hundred thousand dollars, which is uh, yeah pretty damn wild yeah that that will be replacing the practical knowledge section i think when we do interviews largely that will be the case because no one wants a four-hour podcast maybe people do want a four-hour podcast if you do want a four-hour podcast don't forget we have forum where you can discuss things happening on the podcast (laughs) see it kind of like youtube comments for podcasts without the dicks forums.todayfoundout.com or just go to todayfoundout.com and click on the forums button in the title bar so that's the calls that's coming up later in this episode we got wheezy waiter coming up 
the week after next, so we'll have a regular Practical Knowledge episode next week, Wheezy Way to the week after that, and all sorts of good interviews coming up in the future, which we haven't yet arranged, so I'm assuming they'll be good. Strong <laughs> plug there for future Well, episodes. we did have... Yeah, we have like Carl and uh, and uh, oh, of course. To talk about. Oh, and, yeah, uh, we do have Carl, the lawyer guy, to talk about trademark and copyright laws. It pertains to podcasting and YouTube, which is I've seen his talk on this. It's quite good. Yes, yes. I, oh, you saw that at PodCon, right? Yeah, I did. Look yeah. at you going to all these conferences. I'm looking forward to VidCon. Yeah. Give us a review on iTunes. Make it yeah. good if you want. Make it bad if you don't. Or just make it. If it's bad, you could always just go to the forum and, and tell us there. You know? Yeah, then we then we can reply. Wait, that's not selling it. Main bit of feedback from this time to last time i think was anyone it's, it's always complicated when you record these out of order but if you're listening to this you will have listened to past week's episode which i haven't finished even editing yet so that's weird in my mind but there are no more whistling transitions we did away with them because everyone hates them they sound really good when i listen to them on my phone or headphones but apparently they must like ear pierce people uh, in other other headphones I, I think so i think it's maybe just a bit sharp for some people it, it happens there are there are some people and maybe it's to my detriment to point this out but sibilance or sibilance or however you want to call it, which is this sound you hear when people speak. Um, some people are really sensitive to that. And so every now and again, you're getting, you know, especially when I was doing the podcast, uh, my previous podcast, people even, oh, it's impossible to listen to with a s-s-s-s-s. And anyone I ask, anyone else is like, I have no idea what you're talking about. But there are some people who are very sensitive to this uh, sibilance or whatever it's called. So yeah, I, I generally don't do anything about that because it's a problem for 99% of, it's not a problem for 99.9% of people and it's a pain in the ass to remove. So, um, uh, yes, I'm sorry. I should note that uh, my my 286s there that I was telling you about does in fact have a siblings remover Ooh. automatically. You can there you go. You can, the, mm. I don't I don't have it turned on, but it has it. <laughs> Audition has one which you can do it in post, but it, it's not particularly yeah. good. So I'm wondering if yours yeah. is actually actually better. Well, yeah, it, I kind of like ruins the audio in other ways if it if it's turned on too much. Yes, this is exactly it. It makes it sound. This is a problem with with anything. It's like can't you remove those trucks going past in the backgrounds? And it's like yes not that there are trucks going past in the background but it does if you up the noise reduction eventually it just sounds like you're underwater it's it's mm-hmm. quite maybe i could put it in a little in the post this bit of me talking now is heavily noise reduced and you can hear it sounds really terrible that uh, that leads us well into why we have not filmed ourselves yet could talk a bit about the i apologize i'm drinking a coffee which i did not put sugar <laughs> in but is sweet very strange. I get the feeling they must have handed me someone else's coffee that they'd already made and were like... <laughs> or it's all the fumes you've been sniffing today with the, um, with uh, the wood floor refinish. Yeah. Just before we recorded, I was talking, I'm having the... I got a new apartment like a few months ago and the floors hadn't been... They're like these old wooden floors. It's like this old apartment and they were in pretty bad condition. So we had those guys who come in and sand it all down and then put like the, the, the polish on top. So my entire apartment smells like polish and dust and i think i'm gonna get brain disease from the fumes and i'm gonna get lung disease from the tiny wood particulates that are floating everything they sealed off the room that they were doing and it's still like there are there is wood dust on everything so yeah maybe i've got a brain tumor or something from all of that and it's making me taste things wrong yeah so we could talk about the the camera the camera issue technical difficulties for one is i think the biggest technical difficulty simon hasn't yet ordered a camera and well to be fair you're 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 
ph4 uh unlike mine because of the tax thing only will stop recording after 30 minutes so you have to this is a wonderful thing that americans that that, that, i'm not sure what it is i i I haven't looked into this but my understanding is there's some sort of vat or sales tax law that basically differentiates still cameras from video cameras now most Mm -hmm. youtubers are shooting on still cameras but the problem is if you buy it within the eu it's it's capped at i think it's 21 minutes or half an hour mine just 21 minutes but then another camera camera i have just half an hour so i think the actual law might be 30 minutes and then some do less than that Mm -hmm. for whatever reason but basically this means like if we're filming an episode david can leave you can leave your gh4 running for like the full time whereas mine stops every 21 minutes which you might think fine just just press record like after 21 minutes but syncing that up afterwards is a task that will make you want to throw yourself out of a window well and you never remember to do it when you're in the middle of having a conversation you're like oh wait it stopped like 10 minutes ago you're right (laughs) but Uh, I I told you, I don't know if people who are listening are aware, but I also have another channel called Visual Politic, and we went for this to go and interview the the Prince of Liechtenstein. Liechtenstein's like a, a small country in Europe. And we had like one main camera, and this could do, you know, it could it was a video camera, so it could con- continue rolling. And But then we had like three other cameras which were shooting different angles, and they were all European SLRs. So every 15 minutes, the the, the production guys, the, the two partners on the channel who are doing like the, the filming of me interviewing the guy, are like running around and hitting all the record buttons again and i'm like this looks professional yeah, yeah. so that that's the technical difficulty uh, and also there's another problem well the, the the problem is we edit this a lot i think someone asked in the comments and it was like the first episode had roughly 1600 edits now they have more because i worked out there's an amazing feature in audition which lets you delete silence or shorten silence so when we pause it will just automatically remove it and it won't be so it sounds like bah, 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 and really weird it'll just take like a, you know a hundred milliseconds of silence and shorten it to 25 so it just basically punches everything up well and that's actually kind of important too because we have this like one second delay between when i hear what you say and when you hear what i say as well so yes it's kind of a, that's a problem okay so this uh, leads on to two problems the first problem is once when you've got that when you're doing that with audio no one can tell when you're doing that with video it starts looking like you've got crazy jump cuts every second because it's like, you know, there'll be a little edit every four or five seconds. And so there'll be just, and it looks really stuttery. Another problem, which I don't think I've told you yet, is this would mean, because we'd be doing video, we'd have to do it in Premiere and the problem, which is Adobe Suite's video editing mm. program, which doesn't have this kind of feature because otherwise they wouldn't mm-hmm. get you to buy the audition program so i am yet to work out whether this is actually something we can do without having to go through and do those 500 edits per section myself or <laughs> having a producer do this speaking of that <laughs> if anyone is a uh, a producer of this sort of content and wishes to perhaps uh, join us yeah. um, we, we you can email us at podcast at uh, todayifoundout.com <laughs> um yeah drop us an email podcast at todayifoundout.com if you would be interested in doing something like that uh, another thing I wanted to just mention with the, the the whole camera and the thing, I think we're also, we're kind of doing a Q and A question here, but it's Alex Pope, and he says, you know, why not put a camera in the room for the YouTube viewers? Uh, the second thing is, go and listen on iTunes. Stop <laughs> watching it on YouTube and go and listen on iTunes because it ran review five stars because it really <laughs> sounds it massively, massively. Because iTunes, I don't know if people are aware, they have this like new and noteworthy thing, and that is so huge for propelling a a, a podcast to actually you know be somewhat successful. You know, like. Like we get um, a lot of downloads compared to most people starting out, of course, but you still like that just takes it to the next level where, you know, you can actually monetize it and not just have it be a big money sink. 
basically. We like to avoid those. Yeah, if you can, don't 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 watch the visualization of this that you're probably watching, and and go over to your phone and subscribe. Enough of that. Uh, I think we we've plugged this enough. Someone says we should start a Discord community. Are you for your knees? Yeah, I was just going to not pronounce, try, even try on that one. <laughs> um, Dem- Demosthenes asks about the Discord community. I only know Discord communities because I previously mentioned uh, on the weekend I sometimes play Grand Theft Auto V with some friends. We have a Discord community, which we use for text chat and audio chat while we play. I'm not really sure how that works for a podcast. Do we start a Discord community and people I've, can... I have, I've never even heard of it before, before it was... It, but it's been suggested a few times in the comments now, so I was, thought, you know... It sounds like we've got a community. Check out our special community. It's nice. It's more of a forum, which I think is maybe... <laughs> from my experience with Discord, that's more of a, a chat, whereas the forum is more of a... Well, a forum, so it's, we think it's probably better for this. So do go check that out. I got a good story with discourse. I was sitting at my computer, you know, um, just working away, working away. And then my headphones are sitting on the desk and I hear someone. I'm, they're like, hello, hello, Simon, Simon. And I'm like, what? did I accidentally call someone? Like, what's going on? Who is this? And it's like, it's Grant. And I'm like, hey, Grant, how are you talking to me right now? And he's like, you're, you've been signed into Discord for four days. And I'm like, what are you talking about? My, it, was dis, it was in the system tray. But apparently that means that the microphone and the speakers are still on. No one was in there. But anyone over those last four days could have just been listening to what I'm up to in my office the whole time. Well, it, apparently I was broadcasting that. It's hilarious because what you're up to a lot is talking and recording. And, right. Know. People would just hear me like screwing up pronunciations and <laughs> recording videos. <laughs> yeah. So that, that's Discord. I think we're going to stick with the forum forums.todayfoundout.com for now so so go check that out if you want some interaction some clint notes that we should bring back the, to quote the bring back the chick on the treadmill yes the chick <laughs> but, on the treadmill. no that was that was a one-time only joke it was yeah it would get tired there are different chicks on treadmills that you can buy on big stock video though <laughs> And there, there was, yeah, there were several people suggesting, uh, you know, a shirtless man running on a treadmill. We could mix it up. Yeah, we could. We could. All of those things. Uh, I, I think I, I did that visualizer last time, which people probably prefer. But I mean, yeah, because it is uh, when you're um, just watching it in the background, perhaps. I mean, it might be a little weird if other people are around and they're like, why are you watching? A, why are you watching a woman running on a treadmill? I was thinking about like people watching on a, or, you know, listening around the house on, you know, Google yeah. Chromecast or something. And it's yeah. like, yeah, that could get annoying. Your monitor speakers, Ooh, did you mention? Monitor speakers. So this is kind of related to the whistling transitions. I bought what are called monitor speakers, which is confusing because to me, a monitor is something that you, you know, look at your screen. You know, it's, it's, it's the visual aspect of the computer. But monitor speakers are essentially speakers that don't really have any additional, you know, they don't add any bass or treble. They don't try to change the music to make it more appealing to your ears. They just make an accurate representation of what the sound is. So the idea behind these is when I'm editing this in Audition, now I can really tell when the whistling is too sharp and all of these things because it just makes this very accurate reproduction of the sound. So from now on, balance should be better there should be less sharp things it should just be a better sounding podcast as well so yes that's all yeah, good. do we do we also want to talk about the upcoming podcast we should. We've mostly talked about this through email. Is it erudition? Is that the pronunciation on that? Uh, I, that's how I would pronounce it. Okay. I, I've cool. actually never looked up the proper, but what is it? That, that, it that's what we're calling it. What does it mean? Yeah, it is a uncommon. Um, let's see, uncommon knowledge about something like. Or let me look it up here. The quality of having or showing great knowledge or learning scholarship. Ooh, 
I like that. Yeah. Um, okay, so that's the Erudition podcast. A little bit about that. Basically, we are, you know, a lot of people mention that they like listening to Today I Found Out. We've mentioned previously that, you know, listening on YouTube is a painful experience because one, it's a huge data hog. Two, if you turn off your phone, it will keep play, it, it will stop playing the audio. So we're just going to take some Today I Found Out episodes and put them into a podcast-like format. Yeah, and probably about, I don't know, probably 30 to 60 minutes per episode, but it'll probably be like a week's worth of content. Right now, the holdup is primarily because um, uh, we realize the music might be a little annoying listening to for a whole hour straight. Uh, so we need to go back to the original original files and, and cut it out. Yes, it is painful, but we'll figure it out. That That is uh, largely my holdup because I haven't done that yet. Um, <laughs> with all your busy. free time. Yeah, with all. <laughs> the last two calls, I've been eating as we've started the call. As this one, I'm finishing off like a croissant that I picked up on the way to the office. And the last one we did, I had a slice of pizza for dinner. So this is an idea yeah. of, of my time-saving methods. I often also work when I'm on the toilets. Pong. It's a game like tennis but on the computer in my mind this was the first game ever made but having read the brief for today's episode i see that that's not in that that, that's not true at all it was at least the it's considered to be uh, i mean people say the first commercially successful game which also isn't quite or electronic game it's not quite accurate because there were plenty of companies making money on like these sorts of things before but this one was the first one where it's just like massively popular um pretty much worldwide and sort of took the gaming industry from sort of a niche thing that um it was a little bit associated with gambling and stuff like that, which uh, we'll get into in a little bit, some of the negative perception, and took it and moved it into the mainstream. And like from this was sort of the, the, the moment, like, you know, 1972 when the gaming industry, the electronic gaming industry just took off. Hmm. And uh, Pong, Pong was the sort of the instigator of it. It's, it's fascinating because, you know, we're going to get into this whole thing today. But if someone asked me, you know, if there was like a who, want, who wants to be a millionaire question about Pong and this wouldn't really work as he wants to be a millionaire because it's not really a single answer. But if someone was like, how did Pong come about? The story that I would be relatively confident about in my mind is like it was accidentally invented by like a company trying to make a word processor or whatever. And then it became the first game and people loved it. And that's why we have computer games. But that's a complete myth. Well, there's like an element of the uh, accidental. I mean, depending on your exact oh, definition true. of accidental. Yeah. Um, but, I will get uh, into all of this. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, 1972. It's it was... Yeah, uh, Nolan Bushnell and Ted Dabney, which is he's the one often not talked about a little bit because um, at least according to Dabney is Bushnell had his way of just promoting himself <laughs> later on and acting like he did everything. So you can choose to believe that who you choose to believe on that one. That doesn't sound familiar <laughs> through any, you know, from any other computer technology companies, right? That's, yeah, that's not yeah, a familiar exactly. story at all. Yeah. Uh, so but anyways, uh, the pair, they had just created uh, this game known as Computer Space, which was a complete ripoff of another game called called Space War. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was just, and they put it in sort of an arcade format and they were quite young, didn't ever really have the financing. So they went to a company called Nutting Associates to produce the game, actually make the game and sell it. And they ended up selling about a thousand units of it, which by the spring of 1972, so it, by the, the standards of the day, that was really successful, but Nutting had actually thought it would do a lot better. A thousand, so they, a thousand units doesn't sound like, I'm on the app store, you know, and it'll be like 2.4 yeah. million downloads. You know, I've never even heard of this app. And this is like the best-selling game of 
Yeah, yeah. It was. It, I mean, it wasn't the best selling, but it was. That was. That was okay. a quite successful by those things. And after, I mean, these cabinets, these these arcade cabinets. I don't know what they were charging for them, but I mean, I see. I if I remember correctly, Nolan Bushnell said he made something like one point five million dollars or something off of this. Wow. So okay. I mean, they weren't they weren't cheap. You know, they were. So we're they were talking. Them. Uh, that's one. That's one thousand five hundred dollars profit per yeah. unit in 1970 dollars yeah so so yeah they it was it was a success in that but on the other hand it was kind of considered a failure by the nutting associates so this caused a lot of tension between them <laughs> and bushnell and dabney and they eventually bushnell and dabney were just like enough we're gonna go do this on our own and i love this there's this quote from bushnell and he's he's was noting that despite his inexperience at running a company like he didn't know what he was doing didn't know how to make these things yeah um other than to design the actual circuitry and stuff and he said he could he figured he could do it as to quote i couldn't screw it up more than they did <laughs> so nutting so, associates in in this case they're they're not like a firm giving them money they're like a real you know because yeah they were i think they made things like coin operated machines like uh, uh, so you had like pinball and stuff like that around that time and so i think they made stuff like that so it was like a natural fit to all right here's this game we made computer space which is completely ripping off this other game but whatever we don't care uh <laughs> would you just make it and uh and you know sell it handle handle the distribution and making of the actual units ripping off other games is going to be a strong theme throughout today's episode yeah. <laughs> like yeah that is that and that, in the early days of the industry that was just what everyone did so rip off what everyone else is doing yeah. and then don't worry about patents or well, who cares about that you know that was just the way of things right and because um, uh, when we talk like a thousand units it's a real box like a big machine that people you yeah. know it, it's not like an app where you can i don't want to you know, mm-hmm. diminish the the you know what it takes to make an app, but at least that's mm-hmm. just lines of code. Here you're talking about, and we'll get into this a bit later. But like, you need, like you say, that that coin machine that you put things into, and you need like a screen, and you need like a control pad, and a big wooden box, and delivery, and it's mm-hmm. it's complicated. Yeah. So in uh, June of 1972, after they broke away from Nutting Associates, mm-hmm. uh, they decided to form officially form their company, which I believe this is pronounced oh. Syzygy. Which is that how you would do it? Syzygy Engineering. That is far too many consonants without any vowels s y z y g y yeah i'd go for syzygy so yeah apparently that like, is this, a- this was like the, the equivalent of like a, a silicon valley company you know how they'll always they'll go through these things so it'll be like everything was like you know screenio or cupio or keyboardio for a while do you think this yeah. is their equivalent of like just- yeah or they have like they have that website that uh, automatically generates random web 2.0 names oh, for awesome. that term yeah and uh, <laughs> i actually used that one of those to create a company name once seriously uh, yeah, called Dazzleblab, which was my first company. Dazzleblab. Yeah, mildly successful. Let's go back, back to the to, 1970s. All right, so Syzygy Engineering, which Syzygy is apparently an astronomy term, uh, means three or more celestial bodies lined up in a given gravitational system. Uh, so, And apparently occasionally can also sometimes people will use it if all the planets are on like one side of the sun at the same time. They might call that. So, but, um, <laughs> so they called their company an unpronounceable name, and then they decided to make it like named after a term that's a little bit complicated complicated and not really sure what it means good job guys <laughs> yeah yeah exactly so uh then when they had been using this name for a few years back from when they first came up with that other game mm-hmm. uh so they'd never actually made an official company they'll register with the state and everything so then they tried to do it and they found out someone else had already named their company that ah. so they ended up according I mean, it's to a dabney, really obvious name to choose so i'm not surprised yeah, yeah, that someone yeah. had already taken that so according to dabney they they then submitted three names to to the um california secretary of state office and it was Haynes. Senti and Atari and just for whatever reason the whoever filed the paperwork chose Atari and so that became
became their official company name. And uh, I guess all three of those are from the game Go. I'm not really familiar with that game, are you? Uh, I've not played. Uh, a friend of mine at university used to play a lot. But... I know the Atari one definitely is, but the other mm-hmm. three I'd, I'd never heard no, I never before. Heard of them. But, uh, yeah, uh, so from that point, they needed someone to work for them. So they hired a 24-year-old fresh reasonably fresh out of college named Alan Alcorn. And uh, Bushnell, they'd actually previously worked with him at a company called Ampex, so they knew he was good, but he had never actually designed any games or worked on anything like that. And so they they kind of wanted to give him a softball start. So they had a contract with this company called Bally Manufacturing, who made like pinball games and stuff like uh, mm-hmm. we were talking about before. And oh, I know. That, do, they still, do they still make pinball machines? This is familiar. I love pinball. It's familiar to me. Oh, I, I wouldn't be surprised if they're Bally. still around, or maybe just like the classic machines or whatever. But yes, so they, they had a contract with them to make a driving game like we, you know, drive around or whatever but they thought this would be way way too complicated for a first go because mm-hmm. Alcorn he was he had you know fresh out of college electrical engineering and some computer science background you know but he never actually made a game so that will give him something easy so as we'll get into later a little bit the um, Bushnell had just been to uh, a little conference where he looked and Magnavox had this game this table tennis game right electronic mm-hmm. table tennis and so he was just like hey uh, who's, um, who's Magnavox it's just a different company they were okay. a big company I think they're still around reasonably big but I, maybe not I don't know they Magnavox to- is a cool name name like yeah they they used to make like tvs and you know dvd players and stuff i'm sure they were still around probably so just a big company that had already made something like really super similar yeah so he was just like hey that that looked simple i'll here you make this but he he wanted him to take the job seriously so he said all right so we actually have a contract with ge and they want an electronic (laughs) table like general electric yeah so did they no they they were just they they just wanted him to take it seriously see what he would do and they they said real simple just needs two paddles one moving uh one moving spot for the ball to you know move around back and forth and then have a digits to display the score that was his only guidelines according to alcorn Uh, i love i love these guys attitude to business like here we'd like you to make a game just to test it out that is really similar to this other game but not too similar and we're making it for general electric yeah, it, it totally was. He, why would General Electric want this? <laughs> well, and that's what he said when he first he first made the little prototype exactly to their specifications, and he was like, "This is really boring." Like, <laughs> so he thought, "I'll spruce it up a little. I'll make it so when the ball hits a different part of the paddle, it'll go off in different mm. angles, so that'd make it a little more fun." And then it'd be pretty it, easy it, if it wasn't if it wasn't doing all that because the crazy angle stuff and that that yeah. speed that it gets up is the is the part that makes it kind of fun. Yeah, exactly. And so then he then he also said, "Okay," and also it needs to speed up, like you just said. So um, as you return. And it's got to go faster and faster and go. make it harder and harder. Uh, and then another, I love this, the, is uh, the old, um, it's not a bug, it's a feature thing. Yes. Uh, so the uh, the screen, if anyone who's played the classic, I don't know if it's like this on more modern versions, but the classic version on Atari, and I remember this distinctly, was you would go up to the corners and you couldn't actually get to the very corner, but the ball could go through there. So it was like a place you couldn't move the paddles. And so he, he the circuit, it was just kind of a bug in his circuit. And he and uh, do you want to read the quote from him about this little the little thing? Yes, I do. One of my lessons learned is that if you can't fix it, call it a feature. The paddles on the original Pong didn't go all the way to the top. There was a defect in the circuit. I used a very simple circuit. I had to, to make the paddles, but they didn't go to the top. But it turned out to be important because if you get two good players, they could just volley, uh, they could just volley and play the game forever. And the game has to end in about three or four minutes. Otherwise, it's a failure as a game. So that gap at the top, again, a feature, was a sort of happy accident. And I, I was playing some Pong uh, in preparation 
for today's mm-hmm. episode the version <laughs> i found which is probably the one when you you know google play pong you activate your mm-hmm. flash player and mm-hmm. the paddles went all the way to the top so they got rid oh. of this feature so oh. did you ever play a game that had that had that on there i i, I think i must have done back in the day yeah i, I remember on the uh, the old original atari but um yeah then after he made this it's been a few months past and and they were like, and so they, they thought, well, he needs some experience with sound, so doing sound on it. So they told him it had to have cheering and booing sound effects every time someone scored or like, you know, the stuff like that. Wow, that would drive me nuts. Like, yeah. that would be fun for the first three. And then you'd be like, yeah. please stop. Exactly. And uh, Alcorn was like, he fortunately for all of us, as you say, he, he didn't know how to he didn't know how to make sounds. So uh, he has a, he has another great quote on this one. God on bless you, Alcorn. <laughs> your, your lack of sound knowledge. Uh, okay. The the quote. Uh, this is Alcorn again. Cheers, applause. How did you do that with digital circuits, ones and zeros? I had no idea. So I went in there that afternoon, and in less than an hour, poked around and found different tones that already existed in the sync generator, and gated them out. And it took off a trip to do that and i said there's the sound if you don't like it you do it oh okay um <laughs> there's the sound if you don't like it you do it there was a comma missing in the quote and i just added it <laughs> that's the way it was so i love it when people talk about how wonderful and well thought out the sounds are so it's yeah. uh, it's it's a feature not a bug again yeah so despite the fact that at this point i mean bushnell knew good and well where the original idea came from now granted the magnavox version was a boring didn't have these features that alcorn had put in to make it actually fun mm. uh, but so despite the fact it was supposed to be a test you know thing he just you know warm up for him to get used to making games and all that and yeah. he knew magnavox already had a game exactly like that and a patent on it by the way uh, he was like oh this might actually be him and Dab, and you were like, "This, this could, this could work. This is kind of fun. So let, let's test it out." You know, so they had, um, they had been doing um, pinball, pinball repair over at um, some various places around, and some stuff like that, different coin-operated machines on the side to sort of just generate some income in the meantime. And so one <laughs> who, of who, who had been their their company? Yeah, Atari. That's what they kind of did a little bit. Um, yeah. It's such so a they curious these... thing, like to imagine Atari back in the day. It's like, yeah. what did you do on the site? Well, we were sort of making games and uh, fixing pinball machines. Yeah, well, I like, mean. It's the same computer. There's circuitry in there that needs repaired and, you know, similar coin operated machines. So it's right up their alley. So you had this um, Andy Caps Tavern and they they put the prototype in and this this prototype was just like so a ghetto you know all hand wired they made it with like some plywood they went out and bought a random tv which it was like 75 dollar hitachi cd uh, tv which uh, was about 445 bucks today um black and white uh and then just put a they pulled a uh, coin operated mechanism from a laundromat you know machine and <laughs> nice. then they put a milk a milk jug underneath to collect the coins uh, inside the <laughs> inside secure, the thing. yeah yeah and so and they, they just put one instruction on the on the thing which said avoid missing ball for high score and so yeah and they figured if it worked out they could they could they had a contract with bally to make that driver game as mentioned it worked out they could just pitch it and say hey how about this game instead and then you know move on to something else or midway manufacturing which is a similar company to (laughs) bally uh they could just can you imagine them So, guys, we know you asked us to make a driving game. Instead... And paid, and paid partially for a driving <laughs> yes. game. Instead, we've just been fussing around, uh, training yeah. up our engineer on your dime. And he made this Pong game, right? Do you want that instead, maybe? <laughs> sketchy yeah. yeah so initially and initially both companies were quite interested in the game because he was mm-hmm. pitching it but however within a week the game started malfunctioning and so they you know 
they went out to go see what what was up and it turned well, out it was it like been... knocked together from like what did you yes. say like an old tv they picked up a milk jug a coin operated thing from a laundromat yeah, exactly and it turned out the coin operated part was the malfunction but it was ah. because the inside had become so full of coins that it was they, they'd piled up to start short-circuiting ah. things out and so it was like so popular and the manager of the of the the tavern was like yeah people are lining up even before i open just to come in and play this game wow. and so bushnell was like whoa whoa uh let's uh let's rethink maybe giving this game away or selling this game or you know whatever so he was like let's let's do this ourselves even though they'd never manufactured themselves you know like actual mass-produced hardware to send out other than you know the prototypes and stuff and they had no money to hire anyone really you know what they need no equipment um and this the the so this the is again is... playing out for them really nicely because because they didn't make that driving game as they were instructed to do they can also <laughs> yeah. be like this isn't what we made for you so this is yeah. just something else and now now we now we're not going to give it to you anyway right we want to keep it for ourselves so yeah that was a problem the money was a problem because at the time this was coin operated machines especially like pinball and like these sorts of things were considered like a form of gambling and they, they were illegal quite a bit um uh, throughout the u.s just because it was supposedly a games of chance rather I than i think we did a video about this didn't we and the guy who plays the pinball in the court to show that it's a yeah. game of skill that was awesome yeah exactly and and this was four years later in 1976 in new york when he when he played that game and called his shot he sort of for those who don't know the story um he basically was in front of all these reporters and city council members and they were he was there he got hired to prove that that pinball was not a game of chance but a game of skill instead and so it wasn't a form of gambling as because it was illegal at the time in new york and many other places in the u.s gambling so yeah gambling not pinball 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 yeah it's but pinball, pinball was illegal illegal by proxy because yeah. it was used for gambling no it was con- yeah it was considered gambling because it was considered completely game of chance, a game of chance. but yeah, what if you're somehow. not putting money on it i don't know i assume maybe people did put money on it i mean you bet with friends or something you know when you're like hey i can get a higher score than you or whatever but yeah this was a thing all but the way back on, from- that doesn't make sense if it was if it was illegal because people were gambling on it but that mm-hmm. would be be like playing poker is illegal because it's gambling but what if you're just yeah. playing poker for fun it was uh well wait clearly taverns still had these but there were there's all these records of like police raids and stuff where they're going <laughs> and like confiscating the pinball machines and any it wasn't just pinball there was coin operated machines in general they had sort of a bad reputation so banks didn't want to give loans mm-hmm. especially to a new a new company who doesn't really have you know a lot oh, of stuff risky. so it, it, it's a little sketchy so so yeah that guy the guy what was his name here um roger sharp so he's there in the in the in the court or in the room all the media there and the and the the politicians are not buying it they're like no you've rigged this machine that's how come you're playing so well and so he finally just gets fed up and he's like after they switch machines to a different machine just to see like oh you rigged the first one or whatever and he finally says all right here's what's going to happen i'm going to i'm going to launch the ball and then i'm going to hit it with the paddle and it's going to go right through the center thing so he's just calling a shot and he totally he did it he launched it he did it and it uh, went right through and then they finally backtrack and all right pinball it's fine we'll no longer consider it a it's now a game of of skill not not chance and so that was sort of the kickoff of this uh this sort of these are no longer maybe you know coin operating machines started to get a little better reputation after that but at this point in 1972 four years earlier it was still it had this bad reputation so it was really hard atari had trouble finding loans until finally wells fargo gave them a line of credit but then they had the other problem which you you mentioned is the um so they had this contract with bally and uh, i think they might have had a different contract with midway but i can't i can't remember exactly but bally they definitely and they didn't want to give it to them anymore like if bally would say yeah we, we you know they had already pitched it to them and bally was interested and they and now they're like no no we want to keep it so how do you do that while still maintaining a good relationship with bally and midway in the future 
you, yeah. I'm like, you could probably get out of that legally, but it's not going to be good good for business. Yeah. yeah, and they needed that business because Valley and Midway were two of the biggest, like, the coin-operated things. So they, they wanted to keep that. So according to Bushnell, anyway, um, and again, Dabney, Dabney sometimes says Bushnell exaggerates things. So they B- Bushnell <laughs> says that he basically convinced them. He kind of started downplaying it. And then he says, Midway, oh, Bally's not interested anymore. Do you guys want it still? You know, kind of like that. And then he goes to to the other and does the same things like, yeah, they don't want it anymore. Do you? Are you still interested? You know, just like, <laughs> yeah, the, so you're transparent. Com- but it's like, yeah, your, your competitor's not interested because it's a dumb game. I don't, you know, you don't want it, do you? Yeah. And so apparently this worked. And wow. uh, yeah, and so both companies backed off, and uh, so he could keep his good relationship. Well, now Atari was in the position to actually start pushing the game themselves, and so yeah, they got the funding from Wells Fargo eventually, and they had some issues with their. They, they went to the unemployment lines and just started hiring random people to wire up these circuits, which isn't necessarily the best idea in the world. Who people have no experience necessarily um, with wiring circuits, and so it didn't. The first run had a lot of problems, but then they they worked out their technical difficulties, and then these machines just started selling like crazy in the US and then in the world and they were pulling in which at the time was um, an unprecedented $40 per day which is about $225 in today's dollars per machine just as they were sending them out so they were very quickly profitable for these companies buying them yeah Um, no kidding that's a lot of money yeah and so Atari was just making them as fast as they could shipping them out and then they they took it to the next step when they came up with the uh, so the home version of Pong which you could play on your own TV at home and they sold in the first Christmas so they sold, sold through exclusively through C Year's sporting goods. Um, it was just they sold 150. Of they did. <laughs> yeah, 150. What, Sears is like a uh, what is Sears? At Sears, it's like uh, clothing. They do tools. It's just kind of a. General... But it's like a department store. Yeah, exactly. Okay. and they're kind of going out of business now. But they had been around forever, and they were huge back then. So um, sport. It just just it seems so strange, like just to be sold in like sporting goods. <laughs> yeah, so it was um, 150,000 units the first Christmas. So mm-hmm. naturally, Atari uh, Atari was doing well at this point. The problem though is as everyone might have already thought of is magnavox is still there going like wait a minute guys ah you the know? guys who had the super similar game yeah you saw this game we know you saw this game you played this game from us and then a few months later magically you come out with this game how do know, they know a version of it uh, well yeah because they had actually at the thing they there was even a register where they signed you have to sign like when you're testing the games and stuff and oh, there was okay, bushnell's yeah. signature and then you know witnesses you know he talked to them and you know all in the industry it's like <laughs> You came for several meetings with our company about <laughs> testing this game. And then literally like three or four months later, you come out with your own version. Yeah. Like it's a massive a, mm-hmm. hit. Yeah. Uh, which, well, what were Magnavox fair, doing with the game? That it was, it they, made they it had to their, market? Yeah, they had their Magnavox Odyssey, which was really like the, you know, it had the potential to be the Atari, you know, like everyone now knows Atari and then Nintendo and stuff. Magnavox Odyssey was way ahead of its time. It was made by a guy named Ralph Baer, which some people may have heard of him. He's sort of like considered the father of, of you know, gaming. Um, electronic gaming because he created stuff like besides he created that table tennis game he created the magnavox odyssey he was involved in um let's see he created the first uh, light gun sort of like the one that you nintendo later used for duck hunt uh he also created the game simon um Ooh. with the little pattern matching you know where you hit the have you ever played that game no no i, feel yeah, like so I it, should i've played simon says another game after named after, no, named like, after myself <laughs> so the original yeah the original is just like it's got these four squares around it that light up i don't know if the original actually light up or I, it must have i guess uh, so it lights up in an, in a pattern and makes a sound, and then yeah. you have to you have to press the button.
buttons in that pattern, then it gets progressively more and more complicated. Uh, um, if I haven't played the get the specific game named Simon, I've played something super similar to this. Yeah, there's lots of derivatives since. But yeah, so he did all this, and um, it was Magnavox that eventually bought you know the rights, I think, to this from him. Because um, he actually just did a site here, Magnavox. Glorious names of it, like Magnavox Odyssey. Yeah. It's like, could you yeah. think of a better name for it? They should they should bring back majestic product names. Yeah, right, well, what's this? The Xbox One, the Xbox well, Odyssey. Ralph Bear and his before it was Magnavox. I think they called it like the Brown Box, or it was the Brown something. It was something like just the Brown Box. Yeah, uh, yeah. So a little bit more like Xbox. Much more twenty first century. <laughs> I think it had something to do with the firm. I can't remember something about like they had brown tape wrapped around the original like prototype <laughs> or something. So they just called it like the Brown Box. It was something <laughs> like that. Magnavox acquired the rights to his stuff, and he was um and I think it was actually Bear who was who was encouraging like, hey guys, you guys you need to go and sue these people. They're copying what we're doing. And I I don't I think maybe because everyone did that at that point they didn't care as much but eventually they did and this was obviously a problem for atari because they this was their product you know that was the only thing making them money and if a, if they lost that in court it was just like okay and we're probably gonna have to pay this massive fine and magnavox um, had a patent on this right yeah it was originally i think uh, ralph bear's patent and they acquired the rights to it if i remember correctly so yeah it was mag- i mean it was because there had been previous there had been previous these electronic table tennis games out so there was some sort of argument for atari to say, hey, there's prior art here. Um, And Nintendo would later make that argument when they attempted to push that um, when Magnavox tried to sue them for the similar thing mm-hmm. um, and Nintendo actually lost but Atari was like we can't risk the loss and uh, you know we, we might win because of the prior art but we might not and so they ended up settling out of court um, with Magnavox and Magnavox also wasn't sure they were going to win this either so they gave him pretty pretty favorable terms it was like um, so the first thing that uh, Atari had to pay him $700,000 which is about $3.2 million today for wow. just the, it's a straight license not if I remember correctly it was not a um a royalty base so it was just a one-time fee which was good um on the on the plus side for atari magnavox then agreed that they would go after everybody copying pong which there was tons because that's what everyone did um mm-hmm. so they would go after all the copycats and sue them and then or make them pay high super high royalties so that atari could sell theirs for less and you know it also eliminate a lot of atari's competition which was great that is uh, w- when i was reading through the outline i didn't quite understand that that is super smart yeah so, so that was atari good. basically handle all of the the sales of their product at whatever price they want while this magnavox company are like we're just going to get rid of the competition by suing them all yeah. we get the money from suing them and you don't have competition yeah that's and a so, genius business move yeah there was one more stipulation though that was more it was also magnavox kind of i assume they must have known what atari would do with this stipulation because they basically said, okay, but now for one year, Atari, everything you put out, everything you sell to customers, all the new stuff, I should say, the new product you put out, we get the rights to that. So it's ours. It's just ours after everything. This is not going to end well for them. It's not like they weren't developing stuff, but they did it kind of in secret, you know, and so the, the you know, the Atari or Magnavox representatives would come by and be like, hey, what you working on? Why aren't you putting stuff out? And they would just kind of give them the runaround. I don't know. What we're did having they expect? <laughs> yeah. Well, and I was thinking, I was thinking Magnavox had to know this was what they would do, but at the same time, it still kind of works out for Magnavox because they have their competing product in the, the Odyssey, you know, which is way ahead of its time. And wow. so maybe it, maybe it takes Atari out of the game for a year, gives Magnavox this, a chance. This is probably exactly right. And that's a genius move because they could probably, you know, they wouldn't have a chance of having something like we need you to stop this company operating for a year because it'll be, oh, you have to fire all the people. That's terrible for the economy. It's terrible for business. It's really onerous like for a court to do that because then it's going to be like whoa you can just stop a company operating for a year so they basically did the next best thing 
and they were like, yeah. we know exactly what is going on. They can't have been that yeah, stupid. Exactly. It takes it takes Atari out of the game. So it's a win for them. And it was great because the contract here for when the period would end, when Atari was a- allowed to start putting out stuff and actually keeping the rights to it, was one week before the Consumer Electronics Show, the annual you know major Consumer Electronics Show. And yeah. so you had to know Atari probably was like, yeah, let's get this contract signed so that when we then when this period is up, we can suddenly debut all this stuff we worked on in that one week. Ah, uh, hold, hold on. <laughs> so they... <laughs> So they were they were really that must be quite interesting. So it's like a week later at CES, and they're like, "Yeah, uh, we developed all of this stuff in the last six days. Amazing, I know." And there's all this major launch because we've been working on stuff for a year. So you know, you know, we got a lot of new stuff coming out. But uh, they so. they couldn't have said that because anything no. that they made would go to Magnavox. Yeah, so they well, must have been like, we didn't make anything. <laughs> Honestly, guys, we really didn't. <laughs> well, I was wondering if the exact contract might have been like anything you put out put so they out. could say as long mm-hmm. as we don't put it out. But but they did have, like they said, they had the, the Magnavox people coming by regularly like being, hey guys, what are you working on? Why aren't you putting in something out? You know? So, it's just yeah. like dudes sitting on beanbags playing old games. <laughs> or anytime they come around, they're like, quick, put away the computers. <laughs> and I love this because you see this so much in like the, you know, uh, you so you have like Apple and, you know, uh, Microsoft and they're all doing this stuff over the next couple decades where they're just total business shenanigans just i don't know let's just see let's just see what happens we'll do it this way and so this was this was just the tip of the iceberg atari another one of their great ones was so not long after they released pong they decided to start a separate company called key games and so Mm -hmm. like and it would be a competitor to themselves and so you think like yeah exactly why would you have a competitor to yourself like wouldn't that drive down prices but the point was is so many of these coin operated businesses what they wanted was like uh, so the the companies they were selling them to wanted exclusive contracts so we get your game we get that game but no one else gets that game the the taverns or yeah yeah exactly like these companies that were buying uh, that would put the machines in their in their establishments they wanted exclusive contracts so we you know we get this game and our competitor can't have this game so people come to our establishment right so ah, so you'd sign up with like so you so so many companies that what's the company atari (laughs) (laughs) the actual one that we all know so atari would be like okay we'll sign with like acme arcades Mm -hmm. and they have like Mm -hmm. a thousand locations in the u.s or whatever and so just acme arcades have these it wouldn't be like i'm signing signing with joe's tavern because then it's like they get your one machine and you make 40 dollars a day it would they might i would would assume there might be some of those deals where it's like in our city you're only allowed to sell this game to me or something like that like i could but whatever the exclusivity looks like that's what they were after that makes sense and so (laughs) now we can have this separate company we'll just give them our designs and this separate company will just copy us in slight modifications and then they can make an exclusive deal or they can make other deals which everyone else even if there was a third company which was unrelated they'd yeah. probably be doing that anyway yeah so so he hires he, they hire the, his uh bushnell's neighbor joe keenan to manage this separate company and this company does like really well and including you probably have you ever you know those that tank game you've probably played a variation of this where you have the tanks coming in from the opposite side and you're trying to like blow each other up right oh and yeah you used play. to play this like at, at, at yeah. secondary school in, in lunch yeah, so the, and stuff the original not only was keenan uh joe keenan did they did they copy everything atari did and then you know do these other contracts but he actually hired someone and then i think he took him from atari and hired him and then they came up with a new game this tank game and it was like wildly successful and i think this was partially how they got discovered in because it became this blew up and it was like hey wait a minute what's this new company wait a minute this is just atari (laughs) hold (laughs) on hold on so but the guy who was running this company was just average joe joe keen and it was his neighbor apparently they were friends residential neighbor 
I'm sure he must have had some qualifications uh, to for for Bushnell to hire him in the first place. But yeah, he That's was great he was to be like, "Hey, Joy." <laughs> yeah. So this this is, isn't this does... illegal? This sounds really illegal somehow. I don't think it would be because it is two. Se- I mean, they were completely separate companies just because they so happened to be owned by the same person. And uh, you know, it's not like Atari's going to sue them for using their design. No, but I mean, know? like the competition. What, what what's your competition's commission? The guy who sorts out monopolies and mergers. Yeah, I don't know. I have someone with business law would have to ring in in the forum perhaps um, <laughs> on whether this would uh, they, they got away with it either way but yeah once 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 it did after about a year it and i think it was the tank game that was just hugely popular it was like wait a minute uh, so then they got discovered and then there was no point in keeping the two and but the great part about this is joe keenan did such a good job with his company and atari was having so many management problems that they made joe keenan the president of atari the random neighbor dude yeah it's <laughs> awesome it's like <laughs> Just being this dude's neighbor, r- running his random fake company, and then being paid president of Atari. Yeah, so there's a movie here. There's got to be a movie here. Yeah, a, yeah, a great movie. There's wow. so many, so many great stories. I think I know on YouTube we've covered like a lot of the the Microsoft shenanigans that are kind of similar to this. And Steve Jobs was like the king of this sort of thing. Um, we need yeah. Aaron Sorkin to write this movie. Yes, you know, that's yeah. like the guy who did the Social Network. This would be great. Yeah. yeah. So you're looking at this, and I love this to sort of sum up this whole section. Alec or Alcorn, he's got this um just the kind of the general attitude a quote on kind of how these sorts of companies ran at the time and sort of their attitude of what they were doing so yeah mm. so alcon said you've got to see how far it goes before it blows up we had no management experience no business experience we were just engineers picking it up as we went along to me personally coming out of berkeley in the 1960s i had no aspirations of being a capitalist pig or anything this was just a fun thing to do wow <laughs> Yeah, and that was, it was, uh, so yeah, they had, if you look into the uh, history of Apple too, there was that third partner that no one ever talks about. Um, and I can't even remember his name right now. And uh, yeah, he had this same sort of thing where he was a little bit older. I think he was about 40 or something like that. And they were, you know, Jobs and Wozniak were younger and they had, you know, they were just like, hey, let's just try this thing. And if it blows up in our face as well, you know, who cares? We're young, we'll do something else. And for him, it was like, no, this is risky, guys, too much. I'm going to step back. And then like shortly thereafter, Apple just takes takes off and just like you know billion dollar company all this and uh yeah he stepped out like just right before that t- that happened it was sort of this uh it's, it's being the young guy who can just you do whatever you don't care if it doesn't work out whatever you want to know you want to know the details we're missing i just googled it his name is yeah. ronald wayne I, I remember this from the the apple from the jobs book he sold his share of the company back to steve and and wozniak steve jobs and, and wozniak for do you want to guess how much i'll say 350 350k 350 350 dollars oh no well yeah that's you're pretty close it was 800 bucks which is about 1500 today you want to know how much an estimated net worth would be if he hadn't done that today what this was back in 2010 so we can definitely add that was post iphone so we probably couldn't add as much as we think but in 2010's 2010's apple valuation would have put his share of the company do you want to take another guess I'll say 1.2 billion. Nope, you are way off on this one. Oh, <laughs> 22 no. billion dollars. Whoa! Oh, Ronald, that's gonna sting a little bit. Do you want to know what happened to him post Apple or what happened to him today? This is just from Wikipedia, so I don't know how much we can rely on this, but it is we, interesting. We have, if you want to navigate on over to today, I found out I have a whole thing on him. Somewhere. Oh, you do? Oh, okay. Yeah. This Google is how I guess. This is how I guess like the 350 because I knew it wasn't much, but I, obviously I was wrong because this was like a couple of years ago when I was researching this. So yeah. Wayne retired to a mobile home park in Nevada, Oof. selling stamps and rare coins. Wayne never owned an Apple product until 2011 when he was given an iPad 2 at an update conference in Brighton, England. 
Uh, welcome to our to the interview section of the show. Uh, it's a real pleasure today. We've got quite an honor to have both Laurie and Corey Cole on the show. They're best known for the phenomenal Quest for Glory game series, which was kicked off uh, by the ground ba- with the groundbreaking breaking Quest for Glory. So you want to be a hero back in 1989, guys. Welcome to the show. As I said, it's a real pleasure to have you on. Well, thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, it's real neat. Really nice to be able to. St- speak about things and talk to people about what we've done in the past and what we're doing now. Well, we appreciate it. David, do you, I, I know you wanted to ask a, ask a question to kind of start off and kick things off in the introduction. Yeah, so uh, getting started, let's just, let's talk about Hero You Rogue to Redemption. Um, can you tell us a bit about the game and sort of like how you came up with the idea? Well, we came up with the idea because we needed a job. <laughs> is one of the best motivations for doing anything in the world. You've no doubt heard about uh, American health insurance, and uh, yeah. it was breaking us. Uh, <laughs> but uh, but it also really came down to uh, uh, we had been tossing idea back and forth for a good ten or fifteen years. That Lori ran a thing called the schoolforheroes.com uh, online, and that we uh, uh, had a quest for glory like thing of everybody can be a hero. People would do a class assignments and so on. And we. And that was actually really intended to be publicity for a novel that she was writing with someone else. And then we morphed that into saying, well, we ought to do another game. And this could be the uh, publicity site for the game. All these things kind of percolated around. We did some prototypes and so on. Uh, But then 2012, uh, Tim Schafer came onto the scene uh, with uh, Double Fine Adventure on Kickstarter. Uh, And of course, Tim had been making games all along with uh, his company Double Fine. But, uh, you know, they wanted to go back to the roots and uh, you know make a, a traditional graphic adventure and we started getting oh, dozens of uh, calls and messages from fans that said hey you know look at what Tim Schafer is doing you know you guys really should kickstart you know a new quest for glory or some kind of another game and mm-hmm. we said well we don't own the rights to quest for glory but we, we can do something new and we've got this school for heroes thing and we said why don't we call it hero university or hero you and right about then a uh, a fan down in Australia uh, said, you know, I'll help you make it. And we said, OK, all the pieces are in place. Let's do a Kickstarter. Mm-hmm. Nice. Did you think about going back to Activision at all to, to get the rights? Yeah, to, well, to... We have talked to. OK, so uh, the story is that uh, when we did the Quest for Glory series for uh, Sierra Online, uh, they were what is known as work for hire, mm-hmm. which means that, uh, you know, they paid us and they got all the rights to the series. Uh, so Sierra Online uh, owned them. But Sierra Online kind of went away in uh, a big uh, scandal after they got acquired and became a company named Ascendant and bounced around through three other companies, ended up uh, currently under the umbrella of Activision. But there has not really been a Sierra for you know about 15 years, just the name. So we've occasionally gone back to Activision and said, you know, would you like to license us the rights to the Quest for Glory series so we can make a new game in it? And they've said, well, we don't, we don't know. We want to. It's a valuable intellectual property that we have someday we may want to make uh you know make use of that and so we don't really want to license it out and possibly uh end up with a title that you know isn't appropriate and so uh you know we've, we've tried that once or twice we weren't offering them very much money and that you know that probably made them think we weren't serious we didn't have much uh <laughs> and we've also talked with a couple of other companies that have gone to activision and say hey, we want to do a new Quest for Glory uh, or we want to remake the old ones. You know, let, let's talk about a license. And they basically just said, no, we're really not interested in licensing that. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. It, it may still happen sometime in the future, but, you know, they haven't seen a compelling reason to have anyone else do a Quest for Glory. Mm. Back to Hero U. Were, um, so when that game's coming out pretty soon, yeah? Uh, yeah, we're finally finishing it. Um, 
I, I very naively, when we did the Kickstarter, you know, we had the team in place and so on. I said, okay, we'll have this done in about a year. Uh, <laughs> I was looking back to the very first games we did. We did uh, Quest for Glory was originally called Heroes Quest. We did the first Heroes Quest. We did that in, I guess, actually just over a year, but, you know, one year of full production. I sort of forgot about the fact that, uh, you know, back then we were on, uh, you know, 16 color graphics and uh, yeah. you know, 320 by 200 resolution and a few other little things that uh, simplified the game development process. You know, since then, by the, you know, between the first game and the fifth game in the Quest for Glory series, uh, the budget went up 30 to 1. I kind of conveniently forgot all that and said, oh, we can do it like we used to. Oh, that is the fact that we're making a very different game when we started out. Uh, one of the things that game development is, it's a, it's a process. It's not a top-down, here's the rules, let's do it. It always has to adapt to what the situation is. And in the course of the t the Kickstarter, we actually changed the, the scope of the game from a simple roguelike uh, game to an actual Quest for Glory-style role-playing <laughs> adventure game because that's the feedback we were getting from the people that were supporting us. Mm -hmm. So so I've turned a simple question to a long-winded answer. Uh, the simple <laughs> answer is yes. We are, uh, after uh, our one-year project has turned into a five-year project. Uh, we started this in, in November of 2012. We, we really got started January of 2013. And it is now March of 2018. And mm -hmm. we're at long last in, uh, uh, the game is actually complete at this stage. You can play it from beginning to end. Uh, we've run it by a hundred or so testers so far. We're about to uh, open up the flood floodgates to another, uh, technically 4,000, but we'll probably get about a thousand of them will actually play it. So mm -hmm. we're about to, uh, go to 10 times the number of testers and once it uh, you know makes it through that uh, uh, gauntlet then we'll be ready to uh, release it so we're looking at uh, probably a late april release oh and, wow uh, i just uh, i just put out an update to kickstarter that's uh, so close we can taste it nice <laughs> nice <laughs> Uh, so where can people go to buy it or pre-order it, I should say? Well, there is a pre-order page on uh, Backerkit. Uh, it's the site we're using, but you can actually get there by going to uh, www.hero-letteru.com, uh, hero-u.com. These days, you know, we've learned better, never, ever put punctuation in URL, but... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but hero-u.com uh, and then there is a uh, uh, a page for pre-orders um, uh, we're going to be raising the price fairly dramatically when it's actually released so uh, mm -hmm. uh, people who sneak in now will really be getting a bargain oh, good. I think this goes out about a month before then so everyone listening now is your chance <laughs> you'd better hurry <laughs> so um, I guess uh, stepping back a little bit we wanted to find out a little bit more about you guys so how did you meet Did was it in gaming or uh, you just before you got into computer gaming or well before i got into computer gaming <laughs> i hadn't touched a computer before i met him really well i mean well we had the in the old days we did have a pre game boy game boy handheld game machine that i had as a kid and that's as close as i came to a computer um whereas i've been into computers uh since uh junior high or high school Mm -hmm. um, and they they were big, you know, hulking uh, mainframes filled a half a room back then. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, yeah, I got very lucky that my uh, brother, uh, when I was in high school, got involved with very early computer. Uh, this is uh, okay. So talking around the story here. Uh, so fast forwarding that a few years uh, and getting away from computers, uh, we were both uh, Dungeons and Dragons players. 
during college. Lori was in Arizona. I was in California. And we played different variations of Dungeons and Dragons. And I had some uh, friends when I, uh, just after I got out of college, I was working in Chicago, uh, which was uh, pretty near where Dungeons and Dragons originated in Wisconsin. And I got into a D&D group there and they encouraged me to uh, run a game. So I wrote my own uh, D&D scenario for it. Uh, everybody loved it. So I went to a company called Judges Guild to, uh, uh, to see if they wanted to publish it. And they eventually did. And I started giving demos of my game at science fiction conventions. And by a whole series of coincidences, Lori and I both ended up at a science fiction convention in San Francisco at the same time, even though neither of us lived anywhere near there. Uh, <laughs> and uh, I was uh, demoing my game and this uh, this cute girl walks into the uh, room and starts looking around. And uh, so I said, uh, hey, there's room in my game if you'd like to play. Yeah, he kind of dragged me into the game and that's how I met him. Yeah. Wow. There you go. Right, so what were the early games for you that really got you into the computer gaming side of things? Like uh, were any games that like inspired you or anything like that? I'd say one of the most inspirational was Dungeon Master on the Atari ST. Mm-hmm. And uh, before Sierra, I was working on a project, uh, which actually is how I got into Sierra. Uh, for the Atari ST, I was developing a desktop publishing system uh, because they really didn't even have a good word processor at the time. Uh, you know, And a company down in uh, San Diego uh, came out with a, uh, a game called Dungeon Master that was uh, really groundbreaking uh, in terms of a first-person uh, dungeon exploration experience and uh, you know, had kind of all the tropes we were used to from D&D on the computer. Mm-hmm. Yeah, in my case, uh, the one that was the most inspirational to me was one of the Ultima games, which was the Avatar game. Yeah, Ultima 4. And uh, they started out with this really creative, uh, who is your character class type of thing of what kind of character you are from a fortune teller card game that you were developing your own character. And then you went into the game and you're this little digital character that basically runs around the screen doing jumping jacks and you had very little interaction. And the the beginning of the game was such a promise of real role playing of an experience that you know you could really get into the game and it wound up just being another little hack and slash go around the world and to me it didn't live up to its promise most of the games didn't live up to actually telling a story and and that's what i really wanted from a game Mm -hmm. and on the uh, other side uh uh, i had played some of the uh, text adventure games uh pre-infocom in fact i played uh colossal cave adventure and the original uh, mainframe version of zork and so I'd kind of gotten into that. You know, I looked at, but you know, we looked at all these games and said there's something missing. So the text adventures tell a story, sort of, but you don't really get immersed in it. Uh, you know, you don't have the, uh, uh, you know, the graphics or the I am there. You don't, you don't really feel like you are the character in the story. And the role playing games immersed you a little more, uh, but they really lacked in the story element. So mm-hmm. Dungeon Master had story elements in the little book that came with it, but the game itself was, you know, a hack and slash. Uh, an exploration game. Uh, so, you know, we said, why can't we put all this together? And of course, the answer, part of the answer was the fact that, you know, Apple II at that point had 48K of memory, it's <laughs> not gigabytes, but, you know, a thousand bytes of memory. It's, uh, so there wasn't much space to play around with. But, you know, we, we just felt that, you know, every time we played a game, we said, you know, our experience from life, D&D, we know this can be done better. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
how long how long did it take um, for that to catch up like to for the technology to really be enough for you to implement your your vision of what you had back then well it should be there in about 20 years or so from now <laughs> actually i mean Quest for glory when it came out it did everything we wanted it to do mm-hmm. it told a good story it had action because that's the thing a game really needs to do is not just get you on an intellectual level which is what usual an adventure game does it's all puzzle solving and that but get you on an emotional and experiential level of having something that's your life is on your virtual life is on the line that Mm -hmm. kind of intensity that that brings just involves you even further into the game and into the story Mm -hmm. so once again to stop talking around your question uh 10 years uh 1979 uh, was about when i uh, first encountered these text adventures games and uh, the uh, mid to late 80s we came across uh, uh, came across Ultimate Adventure Master. So 10 years from adventure <laughs> games, five years from role-playing games and we came in at you know what we think of as the perfect time. So mm-hmm. uh, 1988 I started at Sierra and at that point they had were just starting to improve the quality of the uh, graphics and do these uh, you know these graphic adventures uh, that really let you see uh, the story going on as well as uh, uh, read about it. And they had enough power for us to do what we wanted to do, uh, bringing together adventure games and role-playing games to a degree. So uh, speaking of Sierra, like, what was it? I mean, Sierra was an iconic, iconic, you know, game maker for uh, for a couple decades there. So what was it like working with Sierra at the beginning, like in the early days there? Well, when I came on, I was a contractor and I, you know, and I had never done games before. I was a teacher, but I had never worked with a lot of people before. They basically said, okay, you're the designer, you're in charge, here's your group. (laughs) (laughs) And I nearly got fired before any of that happened. Yeah, because uh, uh, they brought me on to uh, convert all of their games from the uh, uh, MS-DOS, we didn't even have Windows back then, uh, to the Atari ST. And the only problem is they didn't actually have an Atari ST available for me to work on. Uh, (laughs) In fact, uh, it took about uh, two weeks before I even had a computer, even a PC to to work on. I did a lot of wandering and uh, talking with my uh, my manager, uh, you know, about some of the issues of it reading code and so on, whereas, uh, you know, the, t- the top executive staff had no idea what I was doing or why this guy was wandering around instead of sitting at his desk pumping out code. Yeah. Uh, but, well, you know, it's kind of hard to pump out code when yeah. you don't have a computer. Uh, I actually <laughs> wrote that interpreter on, I think, 10, maybe 20 um, yellow legal pads. So it was all handwritten. <laughs> uh, and, and, uh, and then I added it all into the computer because I just didn't have the tools to uh, actually mm-hmm. do editing on the computer initially. <laughs> But, uh, yeah, once we got in there, yeah, they basically uh, threw us in there uh, and said, make a game. And fortunately, they also assigned us uh, uh, Bob Fishbach, who was a very experienced programmer uh, who had worked on uh, King's Quest and, uh, or uh, Police Quest and some other uh, Sierra games. Mm-hmm. You know, we had a mostly the most junior artists, but, you know, we had a couple of artists that had worked on other games. So we had some people that we could actually ask questions of. Indirectly, it turned out that uh, doing the system code of the interpreters helped because, you know, I actually knew the SCI language really well before I started to not to code anything in it because I had just converted it uh, from one machine to another. The other thing is that, like I said, uh, game development is a process. And what we started out with, what we wanted to do for Quest for Glory, actually changed as it went along 
adapting to the people we had on it. And because of the people that worked on our team, it had a more cartoony feel to it. It wasn't quite the grand, dramatic adventure that we started out thinking it was. And we also had humor brought into the game. Also, not just because we had a cartoony kind of character look, we also had very creative programmers that were willing to add really great humor to it, and as well as some of the artists. So the system and the story developed and the art style developed because of who we had on the team. Yeah, so our early influences at Sierra were the two Bobs. Uh, Bob Heitman was uh, uh, in charge of programming and Bob Fishbach was on our team. And uh, Bob Fishbach uh, prototyped the first few uh, what they called rooms, but scenes of the uh, game for Heroes Quest. He, and he was basically just sitting there and saying, okay, you know, we've We've got these, uh, you know, this picture that the uh, one of the artists created for you, but we need interactivity. So he said, "Okay, look at tree," and he may put in some sort of flippant uh, message with a pun, uh, figuring we correct it later. And uh, what he didn't know is that uh, I've long been known as an incorrigible punster. Yeah. Uh, but says uh, incorrigible punster do not encourage. Uh, uh, so I said, "Oh, this is cool. This is fun." Uh, so uh, you know, so we went with that style, doing, mm-hmm. uh, you know, doing the uh, funny messages uh, for things. Mm-hmm. And meanwhile, one, I mentioned we had some beginning artists. One of the artists uh, took uh, Lori had done the in- initial drawings in, uh, for the game uh, in crayon, or you know, it was uh, colored pencil, pencil. <laughs> colored pastel pencils. Okay, fine. Uh, and you know, and, and uh, you know, they're pretty simple. And the artist took these very literally, and he put it into the game looking exactly like a crayon <laughs> drawing. Uh, and, you know, we were kind of appalled because, you know, we had this high fantasy of Imagine and these beautiful scenes. And we got, you know, something that was, you know, a colored pencil drawing. Uh, <laughs> so we said, if the, if this, you know, if everything's going to look cartoony, we can't have a serious game. It would... Uh, it would spoil the mood of graphics that don't go with it. So mm-hmm. that's, you know, that's actually the team uh, shifted the, the whole mood of the game. And we said, OK, fine, we'll go with that. That's fun. However, we did keep with a very serious story. You're so that serious. Didn't, yes, well, yeah. <laughs> we did want a grand adventure. And we did have that. Despite the fun and the humor, it had very serious uh, situations that you were put up in the game. That, and you had to take creative approaches to how to solve problems. Adventure games tend to be one problem, one solution, solve it. And if you can't solve it, you can't think what that one solution is, you're hitting your head against the game and it becomes frustrating and not much fun. Mm-hmm. Whereas our game, we wanted to have problems that we presented to the player, but they had to use creative solutions, and it didn't just take one possible solution to every problem. You could Mm -hmm. find a different approach to every problem so that you didn't get that frustrating hit-your-head-against-the-wall kind of experience. Mm -hmm. Part of it is also that we wanted to have the differentiation between the the character classes, the fighter, the magic user, or the thief, and each one had different skills. So we set up, you know, as Lori said, problems rather than puzzles that you needed to solve. And we gave you a skill set, and there were various items lying around in the game. And the idea was that as much as we could manage it, that you could use anything you could find or any skill you had uh, to try to solve a problem. Uh, and, you know, in practice, we had to, you know, actually program in most of this. But uh, mm-hmm. but we managed to give it a pretty free-form feel that you could wander around this world, talk to people, 
uh, do things. Uh, you know, if it got to night and uh, the gates of the town were closed and uh, you had climbing skill, you could climb over the wall. Mm-hmm. If you had the levitate spell, you could levitate yourself uh, up and uh, cross the wall that way so that, you know, you weren't constrained uh, just by the strict rules of a venture game that says you must find the uh, the red egg because the blue egg will not work. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so how did much more general and, and freeform than that? So how did you manage like the complexity with that? Uh, presumably added a ton of complexity when you had limited storage and everything. How did how did that all shake out? Well, because I'm crazy, it's clear. <laughs> it's clear because I can't do something simple. I just have you know too many thoughts about how you could do something. I always thought from the player point of view, what do they want to do? How do they want to solve this problem? And so, therefore, it becomes very complex, and there's a lot of writing involved and a lot of complex programming that wasn't, you know, Sierra wasn't used to doing. So we're not actually quite sure how we managed to get that game done, (laughs) and it has a little to do with Hero U taking five years instead of one. We had, you know, just a ton of ideas. Uh, I was... I actually recently did an interview for a documentary and the uh, interviewer had previously talked to uh, Ken Williams and Ken said, you know, these guys were crazy. They wanted to do stuff that we couldn't possibly do, uh, you know, in a game. It would never be finished. But but I let them uh, go ahead and try it and uh, figure they'd fail. And somehow they managed to get it done. Uh, Yes. And part of that is, you know, okay, this I we don't have time now. We're running out of time. Throw this away. We had to throw away areas of the game. We had to throw away uh, concepts that we were going to have happen in the game because we had this tight deadline. And so that kept us going and focusing on what we could accomplish and how to make that better. Yeah, we've sometimes talked about uh, the uh, relationship between a game director and a producer. And so Lori was in the position of being the the game designer, but also the director in charge of uh, direct management of the team and so on. And then we had a producer, Garuka Singh Khalsa, who was responsible for dealing with management, getting us resources, making sure we had publicity and so on. And what we've often said is that the uh, uh, director should be completely unconstrained and should you know, want the sky's the limit and have every you know, amazing blue sky idea there is. And the producer should be the person to say, hey, we need to get this done on time and within budget. And so uh, those are really great ideas. Let's talk about which ones that we're actually going to put in the game. So I don't know how much our producer actually did on that, but certainly some. Uh, but, you know, in practice, we had, you know, the original game, you were going to be able to play male or female. Uh, you could play a centaur or an elf or uh, was it a giant no, or a gnome? No. Or a gnome or a human. And we got quickly disabused of that. We were on floppy disks at the time. We weren't even yeah, using yeah. CD-ROM. Uh, there, there was no memory to do this. I remember switching switching disks. You go from one scene to the other, and then you swap. It says, please insert this too. Yeah, so yes, reality made us design the game the way it was. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah so around the same time as we did Heroes Quest, um, Quest for Glory 1, uh, Al Lowe was uh, working on Leisure Suit Larry 2, and he made it the game completely linear, that mm-hmm. you had uh, different locations you went to, and there was some inciting incident, like uh, getting on a cruise ship or something like that, that would take you from one location to another. You never went back. And that way he could swap discs in between. We had a much more open-ended world, and it was you know, rarely clear 
when the disc swap should happen. So it Pro took a lot of creativity to try to get that game. To and probably kind of a pain to the players. <laughs> <laughs> but I think that 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 sort of complexity and the fact that you could just go around anywhere, you know, just explore was also, I mean, it was such a great strength for the game over over anything else, you know, at the time. Yeah, we, want, we wanted to have a, a living, breathing uh, uh, town and valley. We wanted to make it feel like you were actually in a place uh, rather than just, uh, you know, just being dumped down, given some puzzles to solve. Mm -hmm. Likewise, we wanted the player to feel like he was there, that mm -hmm. it was his world, his adventures that he was doing. And we let the, the, the main character of the game has no name, has no lines in the game. And it's solely the player that gives him his personality or gives him his, what he is saying in his own mind so that the player is directly a part of the game itself mm -hmm. do you do you feel i'm wondering like in the development of the game over the last few years do you feel like a lot of these constraints i mean obviously you know swapping out discs and stuff that's gone but do you feel there are new constraints that have come in in you know developing a game now compared to the past or do you feel completely un unconstrained you know like there's just <laughs> so much to be done yeah absolutely. yeah well first of all you can't ever finish a project without constraints uh, <laughs> Uh, we were we were asked in one of our projects on Shannara, uh, we said, if you had an unlimited budget and unlimited time, what would you do with it? And we sort of sat there and looked dumb. Uh, you know, we came <laughs> up with a couple ideas, but without the constraints, uh, you know, it's, it's really hard to, you know, because if you say, write a story, well, what's the story about? Where's it set? Uh, what's going on? Uh, what's the medium? How are you presenting this story? Uh, all these things matter. The fact that we're making interactive games in a computer has totally different requirements uh, than if we were writing a short story uh, on paper. Yeah, mm -hmm. so there are always constraints. The team that you have is a great constraint. <laughs> I mean, we had different artists and different pr programmers all along, and each gave a different their own different strength into it. But people, you know, we didn't have much money. That was major, you know, major constraint here is how much money did we have to spend for this? And so there we were. We, we had people go off and find other jobs and that along the way. And we brought in other people. So we constantly had to adapt to the situation as it was. Yeah, so you have relatively unlimited memory, uh, both for disk space and, and for the game itself. Your graphics are much fancier. Uh, but along with that, you bring in additional costs, and these costs actually do matter. That uh, first of all, there's a question of uh, uh, making the game run fast enough on uh, a low-end machine. So if you really go hog wild with the animation and and real-time stuff going on, uh, some players may not be able to play the game. Uh, so you you know you're, we still have constraints, but they're they're more subtle because we know we can make the game look you know extremely beautiful and sound wonderful, and we want to do that. But uh, who is it? Uh, Brian Moriarty. Uh, went from uh, Infocom over to Lucas. Uh, he did the game uh, Loom after doing several uh, Infocom adventures. And he wrote an article in which he said that uh, his major learning thing on doing graphic adventure games is that rule number one of a graphic adventure game is anything that you, uh, you want to do in the story, uh, you must show. Uh, you can't just talk about it. You have to show it. And rule number two is that you never have the resources to show anything. <laughs> uh, so, uh, so it's you know it's always this uh, this play between we're envisioning you know when we when we look at the castle in Hero U or the town of Caligari uh, uh, where it's uh, set we're imagining 
you know, walking through the streets of Barcelona and that you've got these uh, amazing medieval alleyways and architecture and you've got people all around you and noises and smells and, and all this stuff going on. But you can only get a subset of that on the screen. You know, we don't have the budget to hire a thousand extras. And we certainly couldn't, you know, have each one of them having a conversation as they walk through the street and have it be realistic. So, you know, we have to stay to the story we're doing and, uh, you know, in a subset of it. But we're trying to impart some of that feeling of what we see in our heads is this, mm-hmm. is this huge, rich, vibrant environment. And we try to make that as much as we can, given the fact we don't have time, money, or or the resources to do it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So what we did is we took upon ourselves the time. So I originally said, we're going to try and have this game out in a year. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and we couldn't. I mean, even if we had stayed with our original simplified plans, it would have taken at least two years. Yes, mm-hmm. we had people come and go and people come and go and mm-hmm. had problems of how to get this thing to work because – we were spoiled by Sierra. They had a nice structured system that we worked with to create our mm-hmm. game. And we didn't have that for this. We had to figure out what we're going to work with and how it works before we could even do anything to make it work. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I mean, when, yeah, when you have programmers from anywhere in the world, how do you find them? <laughs> yeah. So you're talking about like how many programmers, how, how many people does it take to make a game like this? And, you know, how many people are typically involved in something like this? It's about 100. We actually had 30. Uh, wow. uh, but I think 30 to 32, somewhere in there, uh, is the total number of people who've worked in the team. At any given time, we usually had around about 10. 10. Yeah, we've had about 10 working on it uh, mm-hmm. at any given moment in time. That's, that's about what we have currently. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we have like eight active people and two people that you know do specific things uh, for us. And or then half of those have full time jobs. So <laughs> therefore, we are working in in the in betweens. Yes, most of our people have given us some amount of their time, and we use that time as fullest we could. Yeah, one of our uh, wonderful and creative uh, programmers who we have on now has a, a full-time job for another game company and just had a baby. Uh, <laughs> wow. So no pressure. Somewhere, somewhere <laughs> in there, he managed to find a few hours every week to work in our game. And uh, we're so grateful because he's made amazing contributions. Uh, mm-hmm. I don't think we can even mention his name, but, uh, you know, just our team is wonderful. Uh, we have really dedicated people. And they're all around the world. I yeah. mean, for one at one point, we had more people working in Australia and New Zealand than we had in the United States. Mm-hmm. So it was a very interesting, unique experience because of the people that we've worked with on this team, we've only actually met a couple of them. Mm-hmm. All of them were found virtually off the Internet and off the world of, uh, you know, virtuality. Mm-hmm. Yeah, one of our current team actually worked at Sierra, but uh, he was mostly in the Seattle office. So I don't know. Did we ever we meet never, Alan in person? We never met Alan. No. Okay, so uh, the current team we have, we've never met any of them in person. <laughs> you mentioned. So how do you? Ha- oh, go ahead. I, I was just going to ask. You know, you mentioned uh, right back at the beginning when you when you were considering doing the Kickstarter. Someone was it in Australia? Like a fan said, "I will help you do this." Are these people yes. who are yes. working with you now fans of the game, or are these people you've kind of recruited later on uh, of the original game? Sorry to to kind of to kind of work with you today. Yeah, they they are uh, Quest for Glory fans. Uh, what actually happened Some is. Of them. Some of them. Uh, most, I think all of them. Yeah, well. Okay, well, some of them we got because a, uh, we have a super fan uh, on Cyprus uh, who uh, calls herself Elsa after one of the characters in the game. Yeah. And uh, she runs a site called questformoreglory.com, you know, that uh, talks about the uh, the Quest for Glory games. You know, when we mentioned in one of the Kickstarter updates that uh, we needed uh, more developers, uh, she listed that on her site. And 
got some of the uh, developers, uh, you know, or uh, some of the people who came to her site, came to us and said, uh, you know, and sent us their information and said, yeah, I'd like to work in your game. I, you know, I was a big Quest for Glory fan, and uh, I'd love to work in this. And we ended up hiring several of them on a contract basis. You know, some of them are still with us uh, today. This seems like a bit of a, like, you have this the game sort of morphing, evolving over time, and then you have people coming and going. How do, That seems like a nightmare to manage. It is a nightmare to manage. It really doesn't get managed. It sort of flows, you know? <laughs> you take it as you as, every day as it comes, and you work with the people and the hours they're giving you. Because any given person has their own life somewhere else and they're not in a little cubicle like in the old days of stuck between nine to five doing work so they give us work as they get it done and that's why we're kind of fuzzy on deadlines and, and fortunately i'm probably a really terrible manager uh and <laughs> therefore nightmare management situation uh, doesn't uh Phase me too much. I'm very less a fair. I, I give people general direction, and you know we meet with them every week on uh, Google Hangouts, and then they go off in their own way. Yeah, so mm -hmm. we're really probably very frustrating <laughs> to work for too, because we require everybody be creative and have to figure out things that you know they think that we should be telling them. Or, or the opposite. Yeah. Uh, maybe they're not frustrated. Maybe they are uh, creatively empowered. Is the way we think. <laughs> Yeah, but they have to have the personality to be adaptive yes. to, you know, and to figure out how to handle something when nobody's going to tell you exactly what to do. Uh, besides us, I believe we have exactly one team member who has been here from the beginning of the project, uh, which is Don Paul Selwood is our lead artist. And he is a miracle worker. But at the same time, you know, uh, we've. Uh, we've paid him not well, but, you know, better than a, a warehouse job. Uh, uh, so he's actually getting to do art and be paid for it. He was a fan artist before that uh, mm -hmm. while working uh, full time in a, as a cafeteria worker. You know, his art's, art has just dramatically improved by leaps and bounds uh, over the five year period of, uh, of the game. And he gets to, uh, you know, he gets to have creative freedom and uh, do some really fun stuff. And meanwhile, we get, you know, uh, uh, our ideas amplified because, uh, you know, we'll we'll give him a you know a sketch or an idea of what we want and he'll come back with something 10 times better so and that's kind of how the whole team is but you know i just single out jp because uh, he's been here from the beginning mm -hmm. uh, and uh, we wouldn't have a game without him at uh, every game uh you read these you know postmortems and games and so on and they talk about you know the plan they came in with and so on uh, what they rarely mention is that this entire process of making a game uh, is it has an enormous amount of luck involved. And the luck is who you get, whether you're able to f find financing when you need it, uh, whether you have the resources, uh, whether the initial design actually makes any sense when you uh, start implementing it. We've had some things, we've had to throw out dozens of the ideas in this game. We had a whole lock picking mechanism that we said, this is boring. Players are going to be picking locks all through the game. We finally ended up going more like Quest for Glory and saying, okay, what's your lock picking skill? Did you make it or not? We have a, uh, we ended up morphing our original thought of a lock picking puzzle into a trap disarming puzzle because there are fewer traps. So we could do something more complicated. Uh, and that went through, uh, we probably spent six months going back and forth and ideas for that. Then the, uh, you know, then JP got involved, a programmer got involved, and another programmer got involved, and we ended up with something absolutely wonderful that we love. But uh, it's, it doesn't look too much like what we started. <laughs> <laughs> so from a, from a lower level, so you have all this management of people and stuff, 
What what about I think a lot of people don't know like what does a gaming engine how do how does that work into this process on the low level of actually making the game? It definitely affected how we did things in this game because we didn't know what we were doing at the beginning. We found we started out because we were told Unity was the way to go. So therefore we didn't know anything about Unity but we were told that's right. So therefore we had to see how to make it work and we discovered that it doesn't work the way we think it will. Yeah, Unity is is free, uh, and uh, it's it's a really powerful engine that does both 2D and 3D, uh, and it's got great stuff. Well, what we discovered is, uh, yes, if you have a, a tool that does everything, it's kind of like what I was talking about earlier of having a game without constraints. Unity can do everything, but to make it do something, you need to uh, basically you know get a bunch of add-ons and write uh, you know in between code that does it. So Unity is really great for uh, you know for doing certain types of like uh, action games and so on. But an adventure game has certain constraints. We have the idea of scenes that you're going to. And if- first, and we were starting out thinking of this as a Sierra game because that's the style we were looking at. And so therefore, it was going to be a 2D game that looks 3D, which is what Sierra did. And what we discovered is that Unity is really, really good at 3D. And at least uh, back in version 4, where we were when we started this project, it didn't do 2D very well. We had to basically map all of our our 2D images onto 3D objects in order to display them. And animation, well, we didn't have a good program to animate them. So our characters were at first looking like paper dolls, cutouts that actually were moved like puppets. And they didn't look very good. Yeah, so it might have been able to do South Park uh, uh, type animation. (laughs) But but it just, uh, I mean, the game didn't look good to start with. Uh, Mm -hmm. So we went through a lot of phases in that. Uh, we also found that when we started looking for traditional 2D paper animators, uh, that we had a terrible time finding them, uh, that everybody had moved to 3D. Mm-hmm. Uh, there really were not very many people that, uh, you know, and there were people that did, you know, retro, uh, like the old, you know, 16-color blocky pixel animation um, stuff. And, you know, we had a couple of them uh, apply, uh, and we said that's not the look we're looking for. We want a more realistic look. We want this to... Uh, you know, to really look beautiful. We had trouble finding people. So uh, over time, the game gradually more and more morphed from a, a 2D game to a 3D game. And we had uh, very bad memories of Quest for Glory 5 at Sierra, which was the only uh, Quest for Glory done in 3D that uh, mm-hmm. it's a pretty terrible looking game. Uh, <laughs> and, you know, we were uh, ahead of the curve there. But uh, it does not age well. It does not age well. <laughs> and we, you know, we, and it, and it was, you know, massively blew out the budget. Okay, mm-hmm. so all of our games were done for, you know, a, a few hundred thousand dollars for the early games, uh, under a million for Quest for Glory 4, and almost five million for Quest for Glory 5. Wow, wow. That's and, a jump. Yes. And we had a, a 300-something thousand dollar budget from our Kickstarter. Mm-hmm. So we were looking, you know, retro. We were looking, let's do something like uh, Quest for Glory 1 or 2. But in the course <laughs> of it, we morphed to Quest for Glory 5. Or, or, <laughs> Or really four. The beauty of four the with the freedom of environment of five. Uh, mm-hmm. So that we have, you know, that really huge environment. Uh, you know, so when we talked about a room in an early Sierra game, it was a it was a picture. It was, it was a, a snapshot. proscenium stage and it was set up like a stage. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas in here we have a, uh, a room called the Great Hall. And it is a huge long hallway uh, with uh, stairs going up to a mezzanine. And it can take, uh, the player can take, you know, 30 seconds or a minute walking across 
this one room. Uh, so, you know, the entire game just, you know, feels huge compared to mm-hmm. uh, what we were able to do with Quest for Glory 4. It's really open-ended. And, of course, that means we had to have interaction with every object in that game. And it is uh, it is really a massive undertaking, much, much bigger than we set out to do. And mm-hmm. it's got a huge script because, really, the thing is, we've always wanted the games to feel like a real world. And mm-hmm. so, therefore, you have characters that move in this world and you talk to them in different places and they don't say the same thing in every place. So it's got a script the size of the last Harry Potter book. I mean... Uh, and, and we burned out a few of our developers along the way, so <laughs> one of the reasons they've had turnover, and, and others, of course, just you know, you know, we're paying them uh, X number of dollars an hour, and they, you know, some of them were just uh, able to springboard off that to uh, get a job for Electronic Arts or uh, you know, or a big industrial company, and so on, and get uh, much higher salaries. Yeah, real pay. Yeah, and, and yeah, <laughs> we got you into the game industry. Uh, we're very happy for you. We then go out and look for some more people. <laughs> we, we wanted to ask. I mean, uh, over the course of the last few years you've obviously got a lot of experience like hiring developers and different people uh would you what advice would you have for people who are looking into gaming game development is there any sort of educational background you were looking for you'd recommend people get in order to make them you know appeal to you as people who are hiring this sort of person well it's it's really tough uh, our general advice for people wanting to break into the game industry is well don't <laughs> <laughs> next question <I> <laughs> <laughs> how, did, how did I become a programmer at Sierra? I became a programmer at Sierra by doing 10 years of uh, programming work for non-gaming companies. Mm-hmm. So I was a very experienced senior uh, 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 you know, software developer uh, before coming into gaming at all. Specifically, uh, you know, it's a really good idea to at least get a bachelor's degree uh, in a specific field. If you're going to be a uh, you know, programmer slash developer, then... Uh, you know, get a get a degree in computer science. If you're going to uh, do art and animation, there's probably more work for you. And uh, you know, getting an art degree is a really good idea. Uh, specifically today, you definitely want to learn Unity. Uh, mm-hmm. It's uh, being used by a lot of houses. It, I mean, it really is a very powerful system. And um, what, as an artist, you need to know some 3D tools, uh, maybe Maya, maybe uh, I don't know what they use these days. Well, in my case, Studio. The reason I got into computer gaming is because I had a husband who wanted to get into computer gaming. (laughs) So, therefore, it takes luck. It takes people you know, because Mm. that's always the way to get a job, is to know somebody else and to make friends and to go to conventions and to interact with people and learn where they are and what they're doing. And through context, you get jobs. We got the job at Sierra because we had met somebody at a science fiction convention who worked for Sierra. And that happens all the time. We got JP because we were working with somebody else. And all of these people have connections. So the one way to get a real good job is to make connections with other people and to interact and to be passionate about what you're doing such that you can show that passion to other people and they recognize it. Which is funny because we think of ourselves as uh, shy introverts. uh, Don't get out and do do a lot with other people, but you you have to break out of that. Uh, So we met at a science fiction convention, somebody else that uh, we played uh, Dungeons and Dragons with, uh, and knew that we were, uh, you know, that we ran a D&D game and we had developed our own game system. Uh, Carly Huck's daughter happened to uh, uh, live part-time in the Bay Area and part-time in uh, Course Gold, California, where she did uh, contract work for Sierra. So she did the animation for King's Quest IV 
uh, Perils of Rosella. And uh, she was in on a meeting with Ken Williams where they said, you know, we, we want to get back into role-playing games. We need to find some expert, you know, dungeon masters to make us a great role-playing game. And Carly said, oh, yeah, I know a couple people that uh, that are really good at that. She talked to us, and then and then it became a risk-taking thing. Is, uh, we had to drop everything we were doing uh, in our home in San Jose. We had to sell the house. We had to uh, quit the project, the desktop publishing project I was working on, and uh, you know, pull up all our roots, uh, move up into the mountains, and work for Sierra. Uh, mm-hmm. Today, you don't have to do that as much. I mean, all of our people are working at home. And there are, you know, lots of opportunities for that. But you need to be willing to take risks. Uh, you need to maybe be willing to work for a lot less pay than you would at an industrial job. And you need to make friends and go places. Uh, go to uh, the Game Developers Conference, uh, which is, you know, really expensive. We hardly ever go because it's too expensive for us. You know, but uh, go to science fiction conventions, talk, meet people. Uh, if someone is on a uh, panel that says things you like. I got in one of the things I did when I wanted to get into uh, programming originally, uh, I subscribed to the Electronic Engineering Times uh, and I read a wonderful editorial by this young man named uh, Bill Gates, uh, who was running a, a small startup company called Microsoft at the time and talked about the future of the computer industry. And I said, you know, this is right on. This guy's really got it. And I wrote him a letter and said, you know, that was a really great article. And oh, by the way, here's my resume. I'd love to come work with for you. Uh, you know, a week or two later, uh, you know, I got a call from uh, Microsoft wanting me to go up there and interview. Unfortunately, that didn't happen. I went a different path. But, uh, you know, that, you know, having the chutzpah uh, to, uh, you know, he, he wasn't the Bill Gates back then, but, you know, but he was still running a, uh, you know, an important company. Uh, and having the chutzpah to go th- and say, uh, you know, I'd like to go to work for you was the only way to get that opportunity mm-hmm. because I didn't know anyone personally who worked there. Mm-hmm. But you've, you've got to go and put yourself out there and, you know, be willing to do whatever it takes uh, to get the job you want. Uh, and you've also got to develop some skills that are applicable. So, you know, in this last pass over the last uh, two or three years in this project, as we brought in new developers, uh, I didn't take anyone who didn't know Unity. Uh, we have, I guess, uh, one programmer who's a volunteer uh, who didn't at first know Unity, but everyone else, you know, had significant Unity development experience uh, before we brought them on. And, uh, you know, we we don't have the bandwidth to be able to train people on the job. Uh, so you have to have those skills. But you can get those skills by learning online. You don't have to have a class or, a, you know, you don't have to have formal training. Yeah. And we didn't care if you had formal training. We just ha- cared if you had the skills themselves. Yeah, Unity is free. There's all kinds of uh, free tutorials online. Uh, go and make yourself a subset of the game. Likewise for artists. <laughs> I mean, you've yeah. got to learn the tools like Photoshop and things and, and Maya, all those complex things. But the fun thing is, most of us are self-taught with things like Photoshop. You know, you can have great skills, but you learn it because you go in and you find the classes or you find the tutorials online. In her alternate life, Lori is an artist and a photographer. And, uh, you know, we had heard a lot about Photoshop and hadn't really done with anything with it. And then actually, I guess uh, Terry Robinson got you into it. Well, that was ages, ages ago. Ages and ages ago. Starting, yes. So Lori finally decided to try Photoshop, and uh, you know, did a you know a little bit of drawing with it, and so on, and then uh, you know started learning more and more, just spending hundreds of hours uh, watching tutorials and doing experiments with it. 
until she could really make it sing. And, uh, you know, now she does, uh, you know, some, you know, wonderful photography that, uh, that is all photo manipulated to not to, uh, you know, make it into something different, but just to improve it. And, you know, having those fundamental skills, you can develop on your own. Didn't cost her a whole lot, you know, let's count cameras. And, you know, once you learn it, you got it. That means that now she can meet with uh, an artist and say, okay, why don't you use, uh, you know, the blur tool or something like that? Here's a technique you can use to separate your layers and, you know, and give more depth to this, uh, this painting. You know, you have to be able to communicate. Really amazing, the tools and the information on how to use them that we just have at our fingertips these days, just how you can it get is. Photoshop, just a program that's insanely so many layers to it. Yeah, and that's, that's a life lesson, you know, always learn, always be willing to learn, always be willing to adapt to situations and do you know take the tools that you have and make them work for you and you know and uh, we talked about adapting to the team that you know that applies too is that you don't necessarily end up doing what you started out to do with hero you we originally visualized as kind of a uh, a top-down roguelike uh you might think of a, a chessboard with chess pieces for the uh uh, the player and the monsters and so on. And, you know, that was the environment we had at the time. Partially, it was the fans saying, we really want something that looks like a quest for glory. But it was also that, uh, you know, we started working with John Paul. Uh, he has wonderful illustration skills. And he was able to paint backgrounds that brought scenes to life. And we said, okay, well, let's... Uh, Let's switch over to the proscenium stage uh, idea and uh, uh, go to the Sierra look of, uh, you know, and basically we went through these various stages with the, the talent we had and the people we had uh, and started to refine the look of the game. Uh, at some point we said, OK, well, little characters walking around the screen gets boring after a while. And, you know, how do we illustrate? Uh, we, you know, we don't, we're not making a movie here. We don't have a, uh, you know, $100 million budget or $10 million budget even. So he said, uh, you know, how can we really show an action sequence? And the answer was to illustrate it with a uh, vignette. So it's like in a storybook where you turn the page in the storybook and you have a full page uh, uh, painting of the action of the scene. Uh, and we started putting those in and said, hey, you know, these actually work. We don't have to animate everything because we know we can't uh, if instead we can show a still frame uh, that really tells the story. And then just recently... We've started taking some of those still frames and saying, well, actually, we can make a short movie just by moving the camera around in that uh, in that frame. And we're getting some pretty interesting looks there. So uh, you discover as you go. And the same thing applies if you're doing a project in your own. Play with it. You know, don't uh, just don't just copy what someone else has done. Say, OK, what can I do to make this more exciting and more fun? And what do I like? What it, what is it that makes me excited and what do I want to do with it? So moving on to um, so Kickstarter, that's like a whole process, too. I imagine what was the what was the process like there? I mean, starting I imagine that was a, just a ton of work. Well, first of all, I don't know if it's the same now as it was then. Uh, 2012 was, uh, uh, you know, Kickstarter had been around for a few years in 2010. I mean, 2012, but that was kind of the breakout year with Double Fine Adventure and uh, the uh, Torment, uh, Tides of Numenara and several other really big ticket uh, games and of course uh, ours was relatively big ticket at the time but uh yeah you don't go on to kickstarter and say i've got this game idea especially today and say i've got this game idea give me money for it it doesn't happen what you do is you prepare uh for months in advance and i think probably you know we were naive about it i think double fine probably 
uh, did a huge uh, preparation process before they did their Kickstarter, and we maybe did a little bit less. But you're going to be making a lot of concept art. You want to have your design pretty solid. Uh, ideally, today, I think you need to actually fund it yourself and get a prototype up and running so that people can actually see at least a movie of it, if not actually a, a playable version. I don't know how many people actually play the playable versions of thing of prototypes that they put up there, but they will watch that one or two minute uh, or three minute uh, movie uh, that talks about what it is you're doing. And that had better, better be really good looking. You'd better have really good illustrations for it. We started in the days yeah. of the amateurs. So <laughs> ours looked really kind of amateurish when we started out because that's what everybody on um, Kickstarter looked like. But eh, then we did another Kickstarter. What was it? Uh, in 2015, yeah, three years later. Three years later and the market it had totally changed. Everything was slick, programmed. It all looked very professional. It couldn't look amateurish at that point. And uh, basically, our Kickstarters were always driven by the fans that we had prior. I mean, we got very few people that suddenly saw our stuff and said, wow, I really like that. Most of them were people that knew what we had done in the past, and they knew that we were going to do something great this time. Yeah, so by 2015, we had games like uh, Ukulele, I think it was called, and the uh, the vampire game that you know the, uh, that just came right out and said, uh, Kickstarter is not going to give us our entire budget for the game. We It's basically a down payment that we're going to use to convince uh, investors to put money into the game. Our real budget is going to be 10 times the Kickstarter budget. Kickstart my Kickstart project. <laughs> yes, yes, it's kickstarting our project. That's what it is now. It doesn't fund your project, it gets it started. <laughs> which, wow. which makes sense. The name Kickstarter... Yeah. Uh, but back in 2012, uh, you know, uh, Tim Schafer felt that it was kind of a badge of honor. They had to make the game for the amount of money they got in Kickstarter. That was the budget. Mm. Uh, and in practice, they couldn't do that. They had, they got three and a half million dollars and it wasn't enough to make their uh, wow. fine venture that they ended up with. So but back in 2012, you know. Uh, oh, uh, anyway, you're asking the process of Kickstarter, besides the preparation, you want to have a lot of notes together of what you're going to say in updates. So essentially, if you're running a 30-day Kickstarter, ideally, you should be post posting an update every one to two days that has something new about the game, uh, something about the rewards, uh, something about uh, you know the story, something about your, where you're going it, how the, uh, how the Kickstarter is uh, progressing. A lot of that has to be written on the fly because it's, uh, you know, it's current news, but some of it can be prepared in advance. But you have to feed that audience. You have to continually give them something to read and something new. And be responsive because you'll get a lot of comments and you have to be constantly generating the answers to these things. You're trying to build energy. You're trying to build excitement because what you have here is a three-ring circus going to that final day. And you want those people that you've caught with your videos to get excited, to get involved, and to keep putting more money into your project because that's how you get a Kickstarter to be funded. Uh, you also need a fandom. Okay, so mm -hmm. you, you cannot uh, put a project up on Kickstarter and say, I have the greatest game idea in the world, uh, back me, and you'll get a few backers, uh, we'll, we'll mysteriously discover it, but really you've got to have your fandom in place before you start. We had a mailing list uh, from our uh, School for Heroes of people that had uh, gone to our free website, and so we had a couple thousand people that uh, we could notify about this, and it was a few years out of date, a lot of those emails were invalid, but we at least you know got the message out to some people, we got a uh, list of uh, uh, email addresses of uh, 
uh, gaming publications people that had written about previous Kickstarters. And I sent every one of them a uh, short individualized note that says, uh, uh, you know, hey, we uh, created these games called Quest for Glory back in the 90s and we're getting back into uh, making a new game and uh, we'd love to give an exclusive interview. Yeah, Kickstarter is a huge project all on its own and it requires an incredible amount of energy, time and devotion strictly to Kickstarter and you're not going to be able to do anything else if you want to make it work. Fortunately, making a game is also an incredible work that, uh, you know, that, that takes, uh, uh, you know, 60 hour weeks uh, for years and uh, uh, that if you don't have the energy to uh, do a Kickstarter, you probably don't have the energy to make a game either. <laughs> and you had some experience. <laughs> don't, don't let anyone tell you that uh, that making a game is like playing one. Uh, not the same at all. So I wanted to ask John Reese davies in Quest for Glory 4. One, he had a lot to say, and like the script for him was huge, and and you had him saying some really hilarious things sometimes for such a like a refined speaker and stuff. Like, what was the process like of just you know talking to him and or like getting him to work on the project? Well, he was amazing. Uh, the way we got him to work in the project is the same way we got all the actors for Quest for Glory Four. Is we had a uh, a Hollywood uh, voice director named Stu Rosen, very talented guy. He actually has some bit parts uh, in there, so you can hear his voice uh, mm-hmm. in the game. Uh, Stu, uh, you know, basically hired some studio time and got a whole lot of uh, Hollywood voice actors to come in and record lines. We gave them, uh, Lori uh, uh, broke down pieces of the script and uh, came up with sample dialogue for each of the characters. And they came in and read the lines and then they sent us a whole bunch of uh, uh, digital audio tapes. We listened to and said, this is the one we uh, like best. But of course, when they said, oh, we could get you John Reese Davies. I was like, okay. Yep. <laughs> we don't need to listen to anything. We know what he sounds like. He's yeah. perfect. And uh, and then what then what you do is you schedule a, a studio session time with each uh, person. A, a Hollywood uh, union uh, actor basically will, you know can't work more than four hours. Uh, one four hour session in a day, uh, except we sometimes broke that a little. Uh, <laughs> and basically, uh, you know, hire another. Uh, secretary effectively to go through and manage the schedules of all these actors and our schedule arrange studio time and then I went down there with some uh, with a laptop computer that I bought for the purpose and some software that was developed at uh, Sierra to uh, uh, let us do the voice recording and edit it later we went through the script with each of the actors uh, hand them script uh, uh, Stu was there for all the sessions and he did things like brought donuts and one of the uh, one of the actresses showed up and said oh no I forgot my glasses and he brought out his selection of about a dozen uh, readers of uh, different magnifications and said, uh, which level do you like? And uh, she found a reader that she could use. Uh, so you know, just totally prepared for that. He'd done it before and knew all the problems that were going to come up. Mm-hmm. We went through and then uh, initially we did it with most of the actors. We did it by, uh, you know, I'd give them a cue and they would read the line and then uh, we'd decide, OK, if we want to retake We'd say, okay, take two and give another cue and go on. Uh, very, very laborious process. Mm-hmm. Uh, we did this uh, with John Reese Davis for a while. And then he looked at the size of the remaining script and said, hey, I'm supposed to go out. I've got a vacation on Catalina scheduled or wherever it was. And, uh, you know, I'm not going to skip that for this. But, uh, you know, you've got me scheduled for three days of studio time. This is going to take at least a week. Uh, so first of all, he started double shifting. The other thing he said is forget these cues are taking too long. Uh, and he just started going down the page and reading line after line after line. And then I made a couple of notation marks for ones that uh, needed retakes. And then we had 
we did the half dozen or so retakes because he did like a thousand lines wow. uh, on a sequence, uh, you know, scarcely pausing for breath. And then, of course, the uh, people back at Sierra had a nightmare of breaking that apart into uh, uh, to fit the actual lines, but, but managed it. You know, it took a, a month or two of post-processing to get it to work. But, you know, John was just a trooper. This went through and did all the lines. And, you know, he's got this, uh, you know, he's really a very humorous guy. And he gets this kind of sly expression. He'll read these funny lines with totally, you know, totally straight. But you can hear that little bit of humor behind it as he's reading it. Oh, yeah, uh, like I, I saw the, uh, the Rusalka line where you have him uh, doing the thief sign to the Rusalka, you know, the like patting <laughs> the head and he reads it in this like sultry voice type thing. It's hilarious. <laughs> yes. So he had a great time doing it, although afterwards he's... He called it the CD-ROM from hell just because uh, <laughs> when you're doing like Saturday morning cartoon uh, uh, voice recording, what is considered a line there is, hey, look over there. Uh, and what we consider a line is, uh, well, back in the days of yore, you know, da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. Uh, <laughs> you know, so it's basically a paragraph of text in one line. It was, it was just way more, you know, his uh, agent and I ended up uh, renegotiating a higher price, which we happily <laughs> paid uh, once we got Sierra Management to agree to it. And uh, uh, we got him a, a large bottle of, uh, I don't know, some vin and champagne or something as a gift afterwards. Uh, you know, just all traditions uh, in there. But, uh, you know, all the voice act, uh, we had, uh, uh, was it Joanne Gerber? Or is that... Uh, uh, we yeah, had some during, great. During we her. had some great voices, and, uh, mm -hmm. and some of these people, uh, Ken Clark, uh, you know, are actually very famous for their uh, cartoon work and so on. And we were just really blessed to get uh, amazingly talented actors. And uh, I, I mostly put them down to Stu, who knows how to schmooze. Yeah, <laughs> but and it's wonderful working with voice actors. And you'd give them with my games, my scripts, my characters are so varied. They're they're not just straightforward characters. I've got people that have pirate accents or they have East Indian accents. And to have these people come in cold, these actors come in cold and start reading these lines and suddenly they're in character and you hear those lines come to life, that's like magic. Yeah. It's, it's a high point in game design to get to do that. And we're not doing that for Hero You because- <laughs> well, this one has a script that's too long. Yeah, I mean, yeah. If John Reese Davies had a problem with our previous script, he would have a problem with this one. Well, this is a decision we made. This was a decision we made early on um, because my uh, son was also heavily involved in this. He's a he's a gamer and uh, he encouraged us to do things. He's also uh, works in marketing, so he got us a lot of the uh, the, the publicity contacts. Uh, but he said basically that a lot of these uh, smaller indie games have just really terrible voice acting, and it ruins the game. Mm -hmm. So he says bad voice acting will destroy a good game, and you can't really afford great voice acting, so don't do it. <laughs> you know, we had to kind of stick to our guns on that this entire time. That's the one thing we did not change, is we said that, you know, this is going to be a text-only game, because if we're going to deal with voice acting... We want to get people like uh, Cam Clark and uh, John Reese Davis. You know, we don't want to, you know, we've had, a, I, I mean, I've had dozens, maybe hundreds of volunteers to do voice acting or, or audio for the game. And uh, we've had to turn all of them down uh, because the problem is if you have, you know, 50 different actors, each in their own home studio with different street noises outside and uh, different levels of sound reproduction and different skill levels and without anyone actually in there directing them, you're going to get a mishmash of a game. You really need to do that professional approach going into a studio, maybe not so much today. You know, a lot of people have professional home studios, but but certainly when we were doing it, 
being in the same Hollywood studio for every voice, you know, and, and doing it on a completely professional level, you get the best out of people. And it's really hard to get that level of expressiveness from amateur actors that are, you know, spread all over the place. And so we said, basically, we just, we don't have the uh, skill to do that. It's, it's also a little issue that we're still writing uh, dialogue today, five and a quarter, almost five and a half years since the Kickstarter. <laughs> uh, we are, you know, we're getting feedback from our alpha testers and saying, oh, you know, we really need to add more dialogue to fill out that sequence. Uh, it doesn't quite work. And uh, so when's the voice recording going to be done? Well, <laughs> You know, if uh, if the text version is really successful, maybe in a few months, uh, voice says no. No. <laughs> stick to your guns. I, I would love to. I would love to hear these voices voiced, uh, but mm-hmm. uh, it, it would be a major undertaking just to do that. Well, and sometimes, sometimes the voice, like it added something. I noticed uh, a lot in the Quest for Glory Four. They would kind of vary from what the script said a little, especially with with like the farmers. Particularly, they just went completely off script sometimes. It just well, that kind was of a, funny. Yeah, that one particular sequence is kind of famous. Uh, Hans, Franz, and Yvonne. And what happened there is that uh, uh, Stu decided the best way to record that uh, that line was to get all three of those actors in the studio at the same time mm-hmm. and get them to play off each other. He said, uh, well, maybe it would be fun to uh, uh, do celebrity impersonation voices for this. You know, so uh, uh, he said, okay, you know, what voices do you do? And the one guy said, uh, oh, I do a, uh, a Jack Nicholson, you know, and did one of the lines Jack Nicholson. And I said, oh, I do a Jack Nicholson too. And <laughs> I said, well, we can't have two Jack Nicholsons. Well, except they're different. They're just, you know... They kind of give the feeling of by having two different Jack Nicholsons with slightly different voices. We gave the idea of people that are maybe brothers, uh, that are, you know, farmers uh, all living in this very uh, isolated community. Mind you, I was not here at the time. <laughs> she would have said no. <laughs> <laughs> then they just started, uh, what was the third, what was our third voice? I don't remember. Uh, it was uh, Rodney Dangerfield. Or... Rodney Dangerfield. Yeah. Rodney yes. Dangerfield. So we yeah. had two Jack Nicholsons and Rodney Dangerfield uh, for the three actors. And they started reading the script and they were doing a really good job and the one guy said you, you know how tight is this do you mind if i uh ad lib a little bit and i said well give it a try let's, <laughs> let's see what we get and they started going crazy with all the uh you know the stinky people because uh, we were talking about you know uh, needing garlic to ward off the vampires and so on. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and I just thought it was hilarious, and Lori wasn't there to stop me, so uh, so we went with it, and we decided not to change the original text in the game. We left the yeah. next game. And I thought that was near. Yeah. And yeah. it makes a great Easter egg because you yeah. know people have discovered this over the years, and uh, mm-hmm. uh, and they're like, wait a second, they're not saying the lines that are on the screen. Yeah. So uh, one more question, I guess, on on Quest for Glory. Five. This is just something I've always wondered. Why? Why couldn't you save Katrina and Arana? Because this is a dramatic moment. This is the kind of thing of once upon a time somebody asked, you know, can a game design actually make you cry? Can you get so involved with a game that you can't you you can't separate your emotions from the game? And in the course of our games, all of our games, we tried to make the player actually have, you know, moments of true dilemma of trying to figure out what you can do because you don't have all the choices in the world. You have to choose. And it's this mental involvement because it makes you uncomfortable having to make a sole choice, knowing that you're condemning the other to whatever kind of fate Hades has set and for, set for it. And so therefore you remember that moment more than anything else. It isn't a happy moment. Games 
don't have to all be light and light and joy and funny bunnies. There are moments where you have this mental anguish of uh, and and the joy of actually accomplishing something in it. But you remember that moment because you had to make a critical decision and it wasn't a good decision you had to make. So like life, that becomes a meaningful thing you will never forget. So Lori's job is to be the serious storyteller. My job is to uh, uh, completely spoil the moment and come up with something entirely silly so that the player, as they're at this level of stress and tension and, oh, my God, <sighs> finally gets to breathe. <laughs> yeah. It's all a roller coaster ride. Yeah. Uh, yeah, here's the here's the silly. Well, not even fun. It's really silly. You know, it just breaks the breaks the tension, so they can yeah. uh, go on with uh, breathing and living. Can a game make you cry? Clearly, yes. Uh, Quest for Glory Four, the scene that Laurie wrote with uh, uh, the little girl Tanya, the little vampire yeah. girl, and uh, and her pet monster uh, Toby. I cried when I played it, mm -hmm. uh, and lots of fans have said that. Uh, we do get, every time we have something where you have to make a choice that people don't like, uh, we do get letters in from people that said, you know, why why did we have to do this? You know, I, I didn't want to, you know, have to make the tough decision. And you said, but, you know, without it, there's no drama. There's no sense of accomplishment or involvement in the story it has to be there just mm -hmm. likewise uh everybody wanted you know quest for glory six seven eight you know onward and onward a sequel after a sequel and we designed that game to close the sequence to have the hero in the course of five games actually have a happily ever after he gets to accomplish what he's gotten to do and then the world is better for it it doesn't suddenly become a horrible place again that has to go out and fix. Mm -hmm. It's like there should be a reward. There should be a conclusion. Everything should come together. Everything should make sense because that's human beings love <laughs> stories. We want to have a story come to a conclusion. And yes, we might want to play it all over again and have a new experience, but that hero gets to have his reward. You don't just keep dragging him out. It isn't a comic book world where, you know, oh, well, the world has gone to hell again. Mm -hmm. uh, and the player gets to get to a conclusion, too. The player yeah. gets to say, uh, okay, yes, this is a satisfying ending. You know, I've done what needed to be done. I am a hero. You know, it's, and it's not just the character that's the hero. It's the player that becomes the hero. Mm -hmm. uh, we want you to feel that these games matter, that they have a meaning. And even if they're just pixels on a screen, you know, while you're involved in them, uh, you know, it's you out there. Mm -hmm. We did promise that was the last question, right? Just as like a way of a wrap up. What, what, what's next for you after Hero U is released other than getting all those voice actors into us? And I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, you know, it really depends on a lot of things. For uh, Hero U itself, uh, we did it for PC and Mac and Linux. We're going to do simultaneous release on those, hopefully. Uh, it's We have some uh, problems on uh, squarish, uh, old-fashioned uh, uh, 4 to 3 ratio monitors. So game is really designed for widescreen 16 to 9. So we'll probably go through and do some patches at some point to make it. Uh, it's just some of the user interfaces. will Everything will work, but it won't look as good. So we want to make those look better on that. Uh, we're probably going to convert to some consoles. Uh, got a lot of requests to come out with a Nintendo Switch uh, release of it and possibly PS4 and Xbox One. 
We've had a lot of requests for tablets, but unfortunately the tablet market is such that uh, we can't practically do a tablet version uh, for probably a year. And uh, that's just that's just a marketing thing. But I think we're going to have some bugs that will be discovered. Uh, Sierra, we used to joke about the uh, players or the gamma testers or the alpha beta and the gamma test. Uh, yeah. Once it goes out into the wild, they always find things that nobody found uh, while we were testing it. Mm-hmm. So we'll be fixing that. Meanwhile, we will be doing uh, design work for the next game. Uh, there's a Hero U2 Wizard's Way that's going to be the same setting, but now you're going to be a wizard character instead of a, uh, a rogue character. All within the same universe, but uh, new stories, new characters. Meanwhile, in the, in the multi-ring circus, we'll probably be doing some publicity things of uh, going around uh, to various places. Uh, we have some uh, really mundane fulfillment stuff to do. We have to get boxes out to people that order box copies. We have a, uh, a major backer in Germany that uh, we promised to visit as one of his Kickstarter rewards. We've got other people that we're supposed to have online conferences with that we should have done three years ago. Uh, years ago. <laughs> Uh, so we've got a lot of fulfillment stuff to do. And then meanwhile, we'll be watching the uh, sales of the game. Uh, so, you know, we funded about, uh, uh, you know, about $400,000 of the game costs on uh, the two Kickstarter campaigns we did. Uh, the games actually cost us close to one and a half million. Uh, so wow. somehow we have to recoup some of that expense. And if the game doesn't sell at all, then it would be pretty silly. You know, there's, there's an old joke about uh, the guy that was, uh, you know, selling uh, cars uh, for... Uh, $1,000 less than uh, wholesale. And they said, you know, how, how's this work? And the guy says, well, I lose money on every sale, but I'll make it up in quantity. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, so we can't afford to do that. We, you know, we can't afford to keep on making games if we lose money on everyone. Mm-hmm. But uh, if the game, uh, you know, breaks even or does a little bit better, then, uh, you know, for one thing, we're going to go back to uh, our uh, 30 or so developers and uh, everybody will, you know, g- get some of that reward. You know, this isn't about making us rich. It's about, uh, you know, as Laurie said, we started this out in desperation because we were broke. And for us, uh, and now we're even more broke. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, uh, in theory, this is supposed to make a living for us. Uh, and we wanted to make it a, a good living for all the developers that have, uh, you know, been so an, such an integral part of this along the way. And then we'll see. Uh, hopefully we'll be able to make Wizard's Way uh, and the rest of the series. It's projected as another five-game series along the lines of Quest for Glory. Uh, the fifth game is a big mystery, but the uh, we know what it is, but a uh, mystery that we're not revealing yet. But the uh, first four games are the uh, uh, the rogue, the uh, wizard, uh, third one is the warrior, and then the paladin? Yep. Paladin in game four. Uh, fifth game, mystery game. Well, fifth, fifth game will be multi-character. Oh, oh she's yes. revealed the mystery. Yes, really. <laughs> uh, every one of the characters that you played will come back, uh, and you'll be able to switch between them to some extent. When uh, we figure it out, yes. Once we figure out how to do it. Uh, Lucas, hopefully they don't take five years between each thing, because yeah. that makes it a little long, you know. Yeah, we, we think we've learned a few things here. We think we can make each of the games in probably two to three years after this, uh, but they're not going to be one year. You need that much time for the writing to percolate. You know, I mentioned the, uh, the lock-picking puzzle that, uh, you know, we spent six months on and still weren't satisfied with it. If you don't have that physical passage of time, uh, you can't play with things. You can't experiment. Somebody asked about whether or not we enjoyed playing our games. And I've never enjoyed playing any of my other games uh, for Sierra, but that's because you've sort of got... There was never time. There was never time. There was never any time in the process because it was really, you know, it's done, ship. In <laughs> our case, we are having the, the luxury 
of having this long test period where I can go in and say, okay, that doesn't look right. Well, I can fix it. <laughs> it doesn't have to be stuck with lousy something that bugs me. So I can make things right. And that's a wonderful experience of knowing that you can keep making it better. Yeah, I uh, announced the uh, alpha testing process for this game almost exactly one year ago, March uh, 2017. And we were expecting by June we would be in full testing. And it actually took five months uh, to uh, just to work out how we were going to do bug reporting, how we were going to get this out to people, uh, getting a, a web page up, who we were going to invite to the initial alpha test, all that. So August uh, was when we uh, finally uh, started testing and went full bore in, in September. And now, six months later, uh, we are still in alpha testing, and uh, all that time has been spent taking the feedback from the players and, uh, uh, you know, reworking sections of the game and also finishing the game because we didn't give them the entire game initially. Uh, but, uh, you know, it's that, that degree of refinement, that's a luxury we never had at Sierra. We had Sierra wanting to ship games that actually could not be completed. Was it... Uh, Quest for Glory Four, Quest for Glory Five. Uh, they, uh, I had to, I had to uh, uh, basically resign the company in order to uh, take a vacation, because <laughs> the game was supposed to ship in, uh, I think June of '98, and we had everything uh, on schedule for that. And then top management finally started actually playing the game and demanding major changes and going back in the studio, re-recording voices and uh, changing the combat system and all kinds of stuff. And it just kept uh, stretching out and stretching out. And my Thanksgiving vacation, uh, I said, I'm going in that regardless. And they said, well, then don't bother coming back. So so that was uh, that was the way it worked in that one. Uh, but that's, <laughs> that was a rarity. All the previous games uh, had like at most a month of testing. Some of them had a week and then shipped out the door. And uh, Quest for Glory 2, uh, you could not become a paladin uh, the way the uh, they were about to ship the game. Hmm. And there was a... Uh, uh, a bug because everybody played. Everybody who had played played one section of the game. We had uh, ways of uh, saying, "Okay, jump to uh, you know day 35 of the game or whatever," and they would test from that point forward. Nobody on the on the quality assurance staff had actually played the game through from beginning to end. And when they did, they discovered that uh, there was a uh, uh, some circular logic in there that made it impossible to ever become a paladin. Uh, so fortunately, an unrelated systems problem uh, delayed the release. And I played it through from beginning to end and said, this doesn't work. Uh, and we got that fixed, uh, fortunately, before shipment and, you know, little stuff like that. So this game, we've really had the luxury of, uh, you know, spending six months on testing. Uh, we're going to go to into beta testing in two to three weeks. And then after that, we're, you know, about a month later, we plan to release the game. So uh, around the end of April. Uh, awesome. Awesome. And- Based on every estimate I've made so far, uh, anyone anyone clever would say, okay, it's going to slip past that. Uh, <laughs> not this time. <laughs> and uh, the place for, to people, uh, for people to go who want to, to, to get that now, it's uh, www.hero-u.com, right? Yeah, that's correct. Perfect. And uh, we don't keep that super up to date. The other place you should go is... Uh, uh, we have a link to it from there. Uh, there's a uh, a link on HeroU.com that uh, links to our uh, one of our Kickstarter pages. So we've done uh, we're approaching 100 uh, project updates on the original Kickstarter page, and they all have more information about the game and a lot of uh, 
pictures from it, and uh, you can really get a feeling for what this thing is going to be. And uh, there's a, uh, there are a couple old playable demos from, uh, I think, from 2015 uh, up on the uh, HeroU page. Uh, so you can play a little bit and get an idea of the combat. Uh, we hope players will love the game uh, as much or more than they did Quest for Glory, because this is, you know, this is a 21st century improved redo of... Uh, a new, a new Quest for Glory. Quest for Glory for me was just like my teen years played like dozens of times each game. It was just um, loved it. So it was really, really a pleasure to get to talk to you guys. Oh, great. We're glad to hear that. Thank you very much again, so, guys. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, that was great. Sure thing. Well, we know this is quite a long episode, right? So I think we're keeping the Q&A a little bit shorter today. We don't really have any, uh, it's more kind of business-related questions rather than let's answer a fun question about grandfather clocks or something like we did last week. Uh, where do you want to start? Let's start with Cody Swisher's question. I have YouTube Red. Do you still get paid for my views? Yes. He was on the podcast. Yes. Yes, when we posted on podcast, although it would be better if you listened on iTunes or Google Play. Ah, this was a question in relation to the podcast. Okay, because yeah. I did feel it was a bit obvious, like with the, do you get paid for my YouTube? Yes, we do. Yeah, like, exactly. Yeah, this yeah. was this was on the, the video. And um, this is uh, something I think we've discussed before. But so you have, uh, you know, YouTube Red. And so uh, it's sort of a side uh, topic on here connected and so a lot of people complain so we have those in video ads right and uh, and so if you have YouTube Red you're still seeing that in video ad ah uh, we should say rather than because in video could also mean like mid-roll ads that YouTube puts yeah. in but we like an yeah. integration where we talk about you know got the hymns letter on my desk uh, or yeah. um, you know Skillshare or any of these guys yeah exactly so yeah so I, I, we've talked about this before where it's like we'd like to filter these out right but and so I think one way to do it which YouTube should do and I don't know why they don't because it would be really easy is if we could mark this like at the start and the finish of the ad and then like in the system so we do that and then they could automatically filter it out for, for YouTube red people well, if that's a good YouTube idea. People, yeah, if the YouTube red people would just, you know, they could have an option like a little checkbox. Do they want to auto filter these or do they want to see? Because I mean, some some people do them really entertaining sometimes. And so, yeah, the person could select YouTube could automatically filter it out. And then we would it would resolve this issue for the uh, YouTube red. That's a good point. I, I don't know why they do that for YouTube. They're not <laughs> losing anything by doing that. I mean, it might be that the advertisers will want to play us slightly less because we'd be losing a small... P- but, I mean, yeah. there's only a small percentage of people who have YouTube Red, so... No, what is it, like 5% maybe? Yeah, so maybe they'd pay us 5%. But then we'd still just... We'd just have to hit a bigger view target. It's not really... It's not... Yeah. And I, I feel like this, this is, is a really just simple. a good idea, yeah. This would not be hard for them to one programmer who works on it for, like, a couple days and then probably after that have, like, a week or two of testing and then start rolling it out to a few, you know, for testing and then done. Like, it's a very simple simple solution easy for us to do because we can just literally put in the you know mark start and done it skips it for youtube red yeah they already have this kind of stuff set up for when you put in mid-roll add in you can drag or like when you're making a little edit to a video they have all this you know uh, a back-end editing thing where you can mark things in videos i'm sure it's a very easy thing to to do yes so no we can't we can't do anything like that but if youtube implement that feature well we will that would be great yeah Yeah. there you go if you're listening youtube uh get get engineer someone working on this uh, yeah, just two yeah. questions today. Uh, Sonza sixty eight says, "Is there a forum? <laughs> you put this in. Uh, I did. I did see this one before. Is there a forum where we could discuss the podcast topics? Now I'm going to run with the assumption that because this was posted on the podcast where we talk a lot about the forum that that he is yeah. being facetious there, or she yeah. is being or, facetious. Or she, yeah. yeah, turns out yes, there is Sonza sixty eight. Thanks for asking. <laughs> what a convenient Forum's way to, to to end this this episode of Brain Food, um, yeah. which is probably how, how long." 
long do you suppose this one's gonna be like two and a half hours two two twenty maybe i tend not to look at the clock because then i find myself being too clock focused uh but let me mm. see 45 20 i'd say it could be it could be at least two hours this one with the interview because that interview that yeah. interview ran and i love that and in- like that was i really interesting i thought they had a lot of interesting stuff to say and i love how he, he they just like kept talking and like answering the questions without us even having to ask and it was just like it's the easiest interview yeah, ever and, like, what easy they- to interview yeah yeah, and just what they had to say was like super interesting. I'm like sitting there, like, well, this is just fascinating, uh, you know, through the whole thing. So that was that was great. Yeah, it was it was perfect, easy to do. I, I really hope everyone listening enjoyed it. If you do want to discuss that interview, uh, you know where to go. <laughs> Forums.stayfoundout.com. Check that yeah. out. Anything else you wanted to add? Uh, before, I guess this is kind of wrapped up for this week. Um, next week, uh, next week, I think, for Wheezy Waiter. Stay tuned, right? Absolutely. Uh, no, no, ne- week after. Next week will be a regular practical knowledge section, unless I'm really getting my dates confused. I, I am. Think you're behind. Yes, <laughs> that, that will be next week. <laughs> It is quite confusing because, yeah, we haven't even published episode three. This is episode four, and we've already arranged everything for episode, episode five. five. Forgive me, listeners. I am easily confused. <laughs> I've also, my brain has been altered by the presence of chemicals and wood yeah. chip powder in my in my apartment. So there you have it. Although the floor does look great. I'm very satisfied with this. <laughs> I can share a picture in the show notes. It's so exciting. Yeah. It's not exciting, but it's a good looking floor.